We've been fighting a long time, and we have all lost so very much. So many loved ones gone. But you are not alone. There are pockets of resistance all around the planet. We are at the brink. You have no idea how important you are. If you're listening to this, you are the resistance. Ave Maricela Dei Mater Alma Atve Semper Virgo Felix Semporta Welcome everybody to the next edition of uh, How the Faith Came to the United States. This is Florida. I forget what episode this is. Anyway, we're using the book and other resources, but we're going to start out with the book, The Cross in The Cross in the Sand by Michael Gannon. I think it was 1965, the last edition came out. Uh, I'll read the introduction and a few chapters out of this. Well, maybe not the entire chapters, uh, because it goes it gets into not current, but mid-1800s, late 1800s. And if you want to look into the rest of that part. Feel free, get the book, it's on Amazon. Uh, Introduction to the first edition. This is the story of the early Catholic Church in Florida, the oldest establishment of the Christian faith in the United States of America. It is a story told from original sources, as far as that was possible, and from the best secondary accounts in this century and of the centuries past. It makes no pretense at being the complete story, for many more volumes than this one would be needed to pursue three centuries of all of their detail. Still, the essential facts and episodes are here, and the writer hopes that they have been related in a manner likely to commend the tale to the general reader. An attempt has been made to keep the events moving at a good pace and to tell as much as possible of what happened in the words of the participants themselves. And we'll get to the martyrs. Uh, we got an interview on that. And there's two books on them. I'm waiting for the other one to get in. Uh, this book appears in this. This book appears in the year when the Church of Florida is observing the 400th anniversary of its founding. That founding occurred at Nombre de Dios, a venerable mission ground at Saint Augustine, where on September 8, 1565, Pedro Menendez de Avalis landed with his famous band of settlers and Father Francesco Lopez de Mendoza Granjales celebrated the first mass in America's first city. Yet just as the name Florida was once used in Spanish times to designate far more continental territory than the present peninsula of that name, so also the presence of the church in Florida extended many years, half a century in fact, beyond the September day when she was permanently planted in the sands of St. Augustine. Catholic priest sailed with Ponce de Leon in 1521 on his second voyage to the land that Ponce had discovered and named, and on six subsequent Spanish explorations to the Florida shoreline from 1521 to 1565, priests of the church were here to raise the cross in the sand and to offer unnumbered masses on wilderness altars. In the striking phrase of the 19th century historian John Gilmare Shea, the altar was older than the hearth. Whenever the historian's eyes is cast, there stands the altar with its surmounting cross. Stax cum volviter orbis. Around that altar there gathered, at one date or another, all the great names that made up our state's early history 
when La Florida was an outpost of empire and a curve in the rim of Christendom. But with one brief interruption from 1763 to 1768, the practice of the Catholic faith was the distinguishing feature of our state's early culture and the proudly worn badge of many of her people. Priests and friars, conquistadors and hidalgos, soldiers and statesmen, Indians from the swamps and shoreland, Spaniards and Minorcans, rich and poor, the innocent and the repentant, they were a long line of stout men. And if there was some evil in them, there was also much good. And if at times they stooped to small and mean things, they also rose to heights of courage and generosity and sacrifice, which are the real patents of nobility and the expected fruits of Christian life. Florida's story began with a positive contribution, the founding of missions for the Indians. If in later English colonies to the north, the only good Indian was a dead Indian, as Hubert E. Bolton concluded in his book, The Mission as the Frontier Institution in the Spanish-American Colonies, uh, American Historical Review, 23 October 1917. In the Spanish colonies, it was considered a Christian duty to improve the native for this life and to prepare him for the next. Before the House of Burgess met at Jamestown, and well before the pilgrims set foot on Plymouth Rock, the Indians of Florida were being taught the elements of Christianity and the arts of reading, writing, and singing. A century and a half before Father Juniper Serra's friars could count 26,000 settled Christian Indians along the Camino Real of California, an equal number lived under the sound mission bells between St. Augustine and Tallahassee, and along the second line northward from St. Augustine to St. Catherine's Island. Their villages bore such names as Name of God, Holy Faith, St. Joseph, St. Francis, Holy Cross, Ascension, St. Michael, and Our Lady of the Rosary. And the mission chain survived until 1702 to 1704, when the Spanish Indian system, based upon religion and agriculture, came at last into fatal collision with the English system, based upon trade and aggrandizement. The thoroughness and cruelty with which Colonel James Moore of South Carolina annihilated the missions of Florida has few parallels in American history. Only in comparative recent years, thanks to careful research conducted at the two oldest universities in the state, the veil drawn over that incident by English-oriented writers of our national adventure has been lifted from the borderline proscenium to the cause for the contemporary collapse of Catholic life in early 18th century Florida has become apparent. By 1763, when Florida was ceded to England, the Indian missions belonged to history, and after the retrocession in 1783, they were never successfully revived. The large influx of English-speaking Protestant planters and yeomen into Florida after the peninsula became a United States territory in 1821 assured the gradual diminution of Catholicism as a religious or cultural force and the influence as well as the members of the church tended afterwards to contract around the two ancient parishes of St. Augustine and Pensacola. Indeed, after the mission era was wiped out, until the time of the Civil War, the story of the Catholic Church in Florida was almost solely the story of St. Augustine and, to a lesser degree, of Pensacola. With the coming of Bishop Augustine Verote as Vicar Apostolic of Florida in 1858, 
The church began again to do what she had labored so hard to do three centuries before, to break out of the coastal parishes into the Florida interior. By 1870, when our account closes, she had succeeded in an extent that may be called remarkable and even amazing when one remembers that during the intervening years, several of her buildings had been destroyed and many of her people demoralized by the Civil War. Pre-war figures showed that the church in Florida, east of the Apachachola River, possessed six churches and chapels, four schools, three priests, and a Catholic population of perhaps 3,000. By 1870, within the same area, there were 19 churches and chapels, seven schools, 12 priests, and about 10,000 Catholics. So promising again was the church in Florida that the Holy See, 301 years after Pope St. Pius V sent his commendations to Pedro Menendez at St. Augustine, erected Florida east of the Apachichola into the Diocese of St. Augustine. As a diocese, the Church of Florida enjoyed thereafter a continuous advance in numbers, prosperity, and fervor. But that is another story and, God willing, another book. So this first chapter is called The Rim of Christendom from 1513 to 1565. Thanks be to thee, O Lord, who has permitted me to see something new. So spoke Juan Ponce de Leon on first sighting the island. The year was 1513, and the land was fragrant with tropical flowers. It was Easter time, Pasque Ferida, Easter of the Flowers. And a name for this land came naturally to the Spaniard's mind. During the next 100 years, the name La Florida would identify for Spaniards not only the present peninsula of Florida, but the entire American continental territory extending north, to Newfoundland and westward indefinitely from the Atlantic. Ponce's voyage of discovery in 1513 was not a chapter in Catholic history. It was more like a preface. Dispossessed of a governor's office in Puerto Rico, he had set out to find wealth and power, and some say a fabled fountain in islands that he thought lay to the northwest. According to the best estimates, Ponce made his landfall, on the upper east coast of the present state of Florida sometime between the 2nd and 8th of April. Of the ceremonies of landing, there is no record. In any event, there could have been no offering a mass because no priest was with the party. Some historians conjecture that on landing, Ponce may have solemnly recited the simple prayer said to have been used by Christopher Columbus, from whom personally Ponce may have learned it. Quote, Almighty and eternal Lord God, who by thy sacred word has created heaven, earth, and sea, blessed and glorified be thy name, and praised be thy majesty, and grant that through thy humble servant thy sacred name may be known and preached in this part of the world. Amen. Taking a southerly course down the coast, Ponce rounded the Florida Keys, which he named the Martyrs, because the high rocks looked at a distance, like men who were suffering. And then he sailed up the west coast of the peninsula to what may have been present site of Pensacola. Again, he turned southward on May 23rd and anchored at or near Charlotte Bay. This bay was to bear his name for many years, Bahia Juan Ponce. Here he had a bloody encounter with Indians and decided to return to Puerto Rico. Ponce's voyage had not been a missionary adventure, although a Catholic he had not ennobled his enterprise with any purposes specifically religious. The first missionary chapter would come later. To Ponce's credit, it was he who would write it. On September 27, 1514, Ponce was commissioned by the Spanish king 
Ferdinand V to secure possession of his new discovery. The commission empowered Ponce to settle the island of Florida and to take with him a number of priests. Treat the Indians as best as you can, the king admonished, seeking in every possible way to convert them to our holy Catholic faith. Seven years passed before Ponce could get his colonization and missionary enterprise underway. In the meantime, two events occurred that are worth our notice. First, an incident took place at sea, which may have brought the first priest to Florida's shores. His name was Father Alonzo Gonzalez, and he accompanied an ill-fated voyage of Francesco Hernandez de Cordova from Cuba to the Bahamas in 1517. Stray winds blew Cordova from his course to Yucatan, where 56 of his party of 110 were killed by Indians. It is not recorded if Father Gonzalez was among those killed. If he was not, presumably he was with Cordova when stray winds blew Cordova's fleet against the west coast of Florida before the return to Cuba. Second, another explorer, Alonso Alvarez de Penida, discovered in 1519 that Florida was not an island, as everyone thought who had heard Ponce's account in the 1513 voyage. Instead, Penida learned the new land was a peninsula, and he himself fixed the western conjuncture to the mainland at Mobile River and Bay, which he named after the Holy Spirit, Rio de Espiritu Santo. In 1521, Ponce de Leon at last embarked from Puerto Rico in two ships with 200 men and 50 horses, together with a variety of domestic animals and agricultural implements, gunpowder, crossbows, and other arms. Secular and religious priests accompanied the expedition to establish mission posts among the Indians. Their landing with Ponce in Florida is the first positively authenticated instance in the presence of Catholic priests on the mainland of the present United States. Where precisely Ponce came ashore on the Florida coast is not known. Probably it was in the vicinity of Charlotte Harbor on the Gulf Coast. There, he was immediately and ferociously attacked by Indians. Many of his followers were killed and Ponce himself was badly wounded by an arrow. He sadly re-embarked with his priests and people and returned to Cuba, where he died of his wound a few days afterwards. Noble in conception, the first missionary enterprise had been a conspicuous failure before it could even take root. Only five years later, misfortune struck another colonization attempt further north. Lucas Vasquez de Alon, a royal judge in Santo Domingo, sailed towards Florida with 600 men and women including two priests and one lay brother of the Order of St. Dominic. The expedition followed the eastern seaboard of La Florida as far north as the Chesapeake Bay, where Alon's party disembarked on September 29, 1526, and began erecting houses in a modest chapel dedicated to St. Michael. Food supplies soon ran low, however, and widespread sickness followed the coming of winter cold. Alon died in the arms of one of the Dominican priests, and 150 famished and half-frozen survivors of his party decided to give it up and sail home to Santo Domingo. Thus, the second altar of Christian worship was abandoned like the first. Panfilo de Narvez was a tall, commanding man, fair-complexed, red-bearded, and one-eyed. He had lost an eye trying to discipline Cortez, conqueror of Mexico. By all accounts, he was a brave and resourceful soldier, and when in 1526 he returned to Spain after 26 years 
of royal service to the New World King Charles I as Charles V, Emperor of the Holy Roman Empire, awarded him settlement rights to all of Florida. On June 17, 1527, Narvaez sailed from the port of San Lucar in Spain with 600 colonists and soldiers. He set a course for the same Florida coastline where Ponce de Leon had twice been repulsed, the second time at the cost of his life. And like Ponce on his second voyage, he brought with him a company of priests to minister to the colonists and to evangelize the Indians, an unknown number of secular priests and five Franciscan friars. Of the secular priests, only one is known to us by name, El Austriano, the Austrian. Superior of the Franciscan party was Father Juan Zardes, named by Charles V as Bishop-elect of Florida. Father Zardes would never be consecrated, however. For all the talents of the leader Narvez, the expedition was doomed to failure. Within seven years' time, only four men of those who landed at Florida would still be alive. One of the survivors was Alvar Nunez Cabeza de Vaca, treasurer and high sheriff, who wrote a long account of the expedition. From him we learn that enough misfortunes to discourage any but the most hardy of missionaries befell the voyagers at sea before they finally reached the shores of Florida. At last, with many thanksgivings, Narvez anchored in the vicinity of St. Clement's Point on the peninsula west of Tampa Bay. It was April 14th, Holy Thursday of 1528. Narvez and his missionaries were anxious to meet the Indians in the area before taking formal possession of the land. On landing the next day, therefore, they immediately set out toward an Indian village spotted from a board ship. They found the village, but it was empty. The Indians had fled their huts and were hiding in the brush. The only cheering thing the Spaniards found was a gold ornament, which led them to think that more of the precious metal could be discovered farther inland. The next day, Holy Saturday, Narvez solemnly took possession of Florida. To the unseen and unhearing Indians, he delivered a formal declamation, which, because it indicates the missionary side of his enterprise, deserves to be quoted in part. He first explained how the descendants of Adam and Eve had spread abroad across the earth to form many nations, and how God had come to earth to save the nations, quote, wheresoever they might live and be. Wherefore, he continued, I entreat and require you to understand this well, which I have told you, taking the time for it, that it just you should, to comprehend and reflect that you recognize the church as mistress and superior of the universe and the supreme pontiff called Pope, and that you consent and give opportunity that these fathers and religious men may declare and preach these things to you. Narvez and a large party of men then marched northward. Unfortunately, they lost contact with the fleet which, despairing of their return, turned back towards Cuba. Cut off from all supplies, Narvez and his companions reached the country of the Appalachia Indians near the present site of Tallahassee. There, they discovered that they were unable to feed themselves off the land, and their plight was soon desperate. The men killed their horses for food and constructed five rough-hewn wooden boats, which they launched in the Gulf, 50 men to a boat. Cabez de Vaca relates the sad consequences. One after another, the boats foundered in the surf between Pensacola and Matagorda. Most of the men drowned. Eighty survivors were cast up on the Texas coast. 
Gradually, the number dwindled through illness, exposure, and starvation. After an incredible odyssey of seven years, during which they actually crossed the continent ocean to ocean, four lonely survivors of all that company of governor and officers, priests and friars, and mail-clad hidalgos finally reached Mexico and safety. Cabeza de Vaca was one of them. A Negro slave was another. There were two soldiers. The priest had all given their lives. Narvez, too, was dead. Don Hernando de Soto, although only 38 years of age, was a knight commander of the Order of Santiago. He was a veteran of the campaigns in Central America and had served under Francisco Pizarro in the conquest of the Incas. In 1538, he decided to conquer, pacify, and populate the peninsula of Florida, and the lands extending westward to the Rio Grande. Almost alone among the Spanish commanders, he was undaunted by the failure of the earlier expeditions led by Ponce de Leon and Narvez. The desperate tale told by Cabasa de Vaca, companion of Narvez, only spurred him on to succeed where others had failed. On April 6, 1538, De Soto sailed from the port of San Lucar in Spain with 10 ships and a company of 620 men. His Kedula, or charter, from King Charles I, stipulated that he take priests who shall be appointed by us for the instruction of the natives of that province in our holy Catholic faith, to whom you are to give and pay the passage, stores, and other necessary substance for them according to our condition. Twelve priests in all accompanied the expedition to Florida, of whom eight were secular and four were regular. After stopping for nearly a year in Cuba on the way, DeSoto's fleet reached Florida's west coast on May 25, 1539. The bay in which he had anchored was the same Tampa Bay in which Narvez had disembarked. DeSoto named the bay Espiritu Santo, Holy Spirit. On June 3rd, he landed and took formal possession of Florida with all the usual ceremonies. There were no Indians in attendance. Those who lived in that region on seeing the approach of DeSoto's ships had lit warning fires along the coast and fled into the brush. Two Indians, captured by the Spanish patrol several months earlier for service as interpreters, made their escape on the day of the landing. DeSoto, therefore, sent out two reconnoitering parties to capture natives to supply the loss of the interpreters and to make a general exploration of the surrounding country. One of the patrols was led by Balthazar de Gallegos, a relative of Cabaza de Vaca. De Soto had learned on his arrival of a Christian who lived among the Indians in one of the nearby villages, and Gallegos was ordered to investigate thoroughly if such a person existed. According to reports, the Christian was one of the men who had accompanied the expedition of Narvez 11 years before. After a severe march of 10 days, Galagos and his patrol of 80 men returned. With them was an Indian, his body painted in livid colors, carrying a bow and arrows. Galagos reported to De Soto that he had found this Indian at a point some 8 leagues, 20 miles, inland, and that when the Indian became frightened of the Spaniards, he had called out to the Holy Virgin to be spared. De Soto agreed with Galagos. This was a Spanish Christian. A report on the incident was written by Luis Hernandez de Biedma, the king's representative on the expedition. Quote, the Christian had lived 12 years among those Indians, and 
even after he had been four days with us, he could still not put together a whole sentence in Spanish. He was so little acquainted with the country that he knew nothing about it further than 20 leagues. After a time, the Christian was able to tell his story. His name was Juan Ortez. He had been enticed ashore from one of Narvez's ships by a group of Indians, who then captured and enslaved him. The tribal chieftain set him to work guarding the Indian dead from wild beasts. On one occasion, Ortez killed a wolf that had carried off the body of a child. Despite this act, he was eventually condemned to die. Before the execution could take place, he escaped to a neighboring tribe where he found refuge, and it was here that the Soto's patrol found him. When he realized that no gold was to be found here, we left the port of Baja Honda in order to move inland with all the men who had come, except for the 26 horsemen and 60 footmen who remained to guard the port until the governor, De Soto, should communicate with them or bid them to join him. So wrote the king's representative, Biedma. And so began on July 15, 1539, an extraordinary exploration De Soto, his priests and soldiers, and the repatriated Indian Juan Ortiz left their west coast encampment and marched northward into the trackless continent. Only three years later, De Soto would be standing as far away as the Mississippi River. In the first months, July to October, De Soto explored the center of the peninsula, passing through the regions of present-day Date City, Ocala, Lake City, and Live Oak. In October, he reached the principal town of the Appalachian Indians near the present city of Tallahassee, and there he passed the winter. On March 3, 1540, he broke camp and marched northward into the part of La Florida, known today as Georgia. During the course of the next two years, his indomitable procession passed through the central and northern parts of Georgia, circled through the westernmost portions of the Carolinas, and traversed parts of Alabama, Louisiana, and possibly Texas. The adventure was not without its casualties. Sickness and hostile Indians decimated De Soto's company. Four of the secular priests died during the first year, and in a fierce battle with Mobilian Indians near the Alabama River on October 15, 1540, all the vestments, chalices, patents, altar furnishings, and wheat and wine needed for mass were destroyed. A later chronicle of De Soto's adventures Garcilasco de la Vega, the Inca, it recorded the result, quote, Therefore, an altar was erected and decorated on Sundays and holy days of obligation. Standing at the altar, a priest, vested in a buckskin chasuble, said the confidior, the introit of the mass and the oration epistle and the gospel, and all the rest up to the end of the mass without consecrating. The Spaniards called this the Misa Seca, dry mass, and the one who said the mass, or another priest, read the gospel and delivered a sermon on it. From this, they derived consolation in the distress they felt at not being able to adore our Lord and Redeemer Jesus Christ under the sacramental species. This lasted for almost three years, until the time they left Florida for the land of the Christians, Mexico. Although it is recorded that DeSoto was not above the use of deception in his dealings with the Indians, nor averse to reducing them to slavery when it served his purposes. To his credit, it is also recorded that he sometimes assisted the priest in instructing Indian chiefs and tribesmen 
in the basic beliefs of Christianity. On one such occasion, by a strange coincidence the same day, March 26, 1541, when his one-time commander, Francisco Pizarro, was assassinated in his palace in Peru and calling out, Jesu, drew a cross with his finger in his own blood on the floor, De Soto fashioned and raised a towering pine cross at the town of Casqui on the western bank of the Mississippi and proclaimed to the Indians of the place, quote, This was he who had made the sky and the earth and man in his own image. Upon the tree of the cross he suffered to save the human race and rose from the tomb on his third day, and having ascended into heaven, was there to receive with open arms all who would be converted to him. At another West Bank Indian town named Tamalisu, which De Soto reached three years after the start of his overland journey, the explorer felt gravely ill and appointed a successor, Luis de Moscoso, to lead the remainder of his men to safety. On May 21, 1542, he confessed his sins with sorrow and compunction for having offended God and died. A brave soldier, a man of invincible spirit and high resolve, a rude but earnest missionary, De Soto wrote one of the great chapters in Florida's Catholic history and passed from this life beloved by his men, of whom 300 remained of the 600 who had landed with him at Tampa Bay. The group of soldiers wrapped his corpse in a mantle and bore it by canoe to the middle of the Mississippi. There, with the deepest reverence, they consigned the remains of their commander to the bed of the great river that he discovered. On September 10, 1543, after a perilous journey by foot and on rough-hewn brigantines, the survivors reached Mexico and safety. Two secular priests, Rodrigo de Gallegos and Francisco de Pozo, two Dominicans, Juan de Gallegos and Luis de Soto, and one Franciscan, Juan de Torres, remained of the original band of 12 priests. The rest had their graves in the wilderness behind. So too Juan Ortiz, the Spanish Christian, who had lived the life of the Florida Indian for 11 years, rested forever in the strange land of his captors. The dense American brush closed up behind the invaders and breathed again its primeval air. With the end of the DeSoto expedition, Spain's fourth great effort in La Ferida, there were still no permanent settlements, and the mass of savages remained unconverted worshippers of sun and sky. Luis Cancer de Barbastro was a priest of the Dominican order, a native of Saragossa, Spain. In 1547, when he conceived the idea of going to Florida, he was already a veteran New World missionary and a proven success with the fierce savages of Guatemala where he had spent the last four years. Alvarez de la Fe, standard bearer of the faith, had become his title of honor. And Guatemala, which had been called by Spaniards the War Province because of the warlike character of its Indians, was known at the close of Father Cancer's short apostolate as the province of true peace. Cancer read the stories of earlier expeditions to the unconquered and unconverted land of Florida. He talked with survivors of those expeditions, and he began to wonder, why could he not win over the Indians of Florida by the same means he had used in Guatemala? It seemed to him that the earlier missionaries to that province had been hampered rather than helped 
by the soldiers and arraignments that accompanied them. He determined to try, by peaceable means alone, to convert the ignorant and seemingly intractable savages. In 1547, he asked the highest church and civil authorities in Spain for permission to form an expedition. On December 28, 1547, a royal cadula addressed the Don Antonio de Mendoza, Viceroy of Mexico, commanded that official to provide Father Cancier with passage to his destination and all necessary supplies, including whatsoever was needful for celebrating Mass. Early in 1549, the missionary set out from Veracruz, Mexico, on an unarmed vessel named the Santa Maria de la Encina. Three other Dominican priests accompanied him, Fathers Gregorio de Beteta, Diego de Tolosa, and Juan Garcia. All three were seasoned New World missionaries. Father Gregorio had labored for many years in Mexico and apparently had been the first Dominican to think seriously about the conversion of the Florida Indians. Once, with another Dominican, he had set out to walk from Miva, Mexico, to the part of La Florida that lay north of Mexico, but had been forced to turn back for want of supplies. Cancer was convinced that his work would be fruitful only if he could work among natives who had not earlier been antagonized by the use of armed force. He had therefore prevailed upon the Viceroy of Mexico to issue the strictest orders to the pilot, Juan de Arana, to avoid all ports where Spaniards had previously landed. Arana, however, paid little heed to his orders. When on May 29th the shout of, Land ahoy! sounded from the top mast, the priest did not know it, but Arana had brought them to the point near Tampa Bay, almost exactly the same place where, not many years before, Narvez and De Soto had landed and spread the terror of their arms. Father Cancier and his companions leaned over the gunwales of the ship and searched the coastline for signs of Indians. Seeing none, Cancer decided to go ashore in a small landing boat. With him went Father Diego, a Spanish lay brother named Fuentes, an Indian woman interpreter named Magdalena, and Arana the pilot. Father Diego was the first to step ashore, and following Cancer's instructions, he climbed a tree to survey the surrounding country. As he did so, 15 to 20 Indians came out of the woods and approached the shoreline cautiously. As soon as he saw the Indians, Cancer gathered up his habit, sprang into the sea, and ran ashore in water up to his censure. Quote, and our Lord knows what haste I made, he wrote later, lest they, the Indians, should slay the monk before hearing that we were about. Reaching the beach, I fell on my knees and prayed for grace and divine help. I walked up to the plain where I found them, the Indians, gathered and therefore reaching them, repeated my actions on the beach. And rising from my knees, I began to draw out of my sleeves some articles of Flanders, which, though of small account and of little value to Christians, were much prized by them and highly appreciated. Cancer explained later, quote, I had read in the doctors, particularly in St. Thomas, Victoria, and Gaetano, that it is approved of and commanded to take to unbelievers, little presents such as these. He went on to describe what happened. When they, the Indians, approached me, and after I gave away part of what I brought with me, 
I go to the friar, Father Diego, who was coming towards me, and embraced him with much joy. We both kneel down with the Spaniard Fuentes and the Indian woman Magdalena, and drawing out my book, we recite the litanies, commanding ourselves to our Lord and to his saints. Some Indians kneeled, others squatted, which greatly pleased me, and as they rise, I leave the litanies half said and sit down with them in a hut, and I shortly learned the location of the harbor we were searching for, which was about a day and a half distance from there by land. Father Cancier returned alone to the ship to obtain more presents, but on his return to shore, he could not find any of his three companions. They had disappeared, and a sailor who had helped row the priest ashore was afterwards lured into the bush by Indians and was spirited away. Cancier spent the remainder of the day on shore trying to unravel the mystery. Finally, at sunset, with no further word on their whereabouts, the priest sadly returned to his ship. The next day, Cancer and Father Juan Garcia went ashore again to find that not only were their friends still missing, but the Indians of the area had disappeared as well. Once again, despairing of any word from his friends, Cancer returned with Father Juan to the ship. The sailors weighed anchor and set a northerly coast for the harbor of which the natives had spoken. After eight days of sailing along the coast and several more days of negotiating the entrance, Father Cancier's ship sailed into a bay where it seemed suitable to establish a permanent settlement and mission. On the Feast of Corpus Christi, Cancer and Juan Garcia offered Mass on shore. The next day, Cancer, with Father Gregorio, searched diligently throughout the surrounding area for their lost companions, but with no success. Then, just as they were about to leave, they spotted Indians approaching and heard one of them shout in broken Spanish, Friends, friends, good, good. The two priests cautiously approached the Indian and missionaries and responded to their overture. Father Cancer shouted, We are good men, and we indicated by signs that he wished the three Spaniards and Magdalena to be returned to him. The Indians agreed, but it was treachery. Father Diego and the lay brother Fuentes had been massacred, and the sailor had been made a slave. Cancer learned this agonizing news only after his return to the ship. In the meantime, he was deceived again, this time by Magdalena. The Indian girl appeared suddenly on the shore among the crowd of natives. She had shorn herself of her Christian clothing and had taken on the old habits of her Indian upbringing. Deceitfully, she told Cancer that the remainder of her lost party was enjoying the hospitality of the nearby chieftain that she had convinced the Indians that the friars were on a peaceful mission and that there were some 50 or 60 Indians gathered together to hear what the missionaries had to say. Father Cancer returned to his ship, full of expectation for the morrow. On board, however, he met an incredible stranger, a white man, who carried a report that the priest's friends were dead. The man called himself Juan Munoz and said that he was one of the Soto's soldiers captured here ten years before. While Father Cancer was ashore, Munoz had escaped from his Indian master and paddled out to the Spanish ship in a canoe. He reported that the Indians had slain Father Diego and the lay brother. He had seen the scalp of the priest himself and that they held the sailor in bondage. Now came more bad news. The ship began to leak, and it was far from shore. Meat and fish were spoiling, water was running low, Many of the crew were down with fever. Juan de Arana had become increasingly fractious, 
and Cancer found it hard to keep him from withdrawing. Cancer spent the day of Monday, June 24th, on board ship writing letters to his superiors, arranging the things he wanted to take ashore with him, and setting down his adventures to date in a journal. It is to this journal that we are indebted for much of our information about the expedition. On Tuesday, he attempted to go ashore with a party of sailors, but the sea was too rough. Wednesday, the waters were still choppy, but by hard rowing, Cancer and his party reached the shore. With him went Father Gregorio and the DeSoto campanier, Juan Munoz. Before actually stepping ashore, the priests were given pause by the sight of Indians in the trees and of a sizable group of Indians on a nearby hillock brandishing bows and arrows, clubs, and darts. Juan Munoz shouted out a warning to the Indians to stop the hostile demonstration. But Cancer said, Be quiet, brother. Do not provoke them. Father Gregorio urged his superior, For the love of God, wait a little. Do not land. Father Cancer, however, leaped from the boat into the water and waded onto the beach. He called to the sailors to bring him a small crucifix that he had forgotten and then walked towards the Indians on the hillock. Before reaching them, he fell on his knees for a moment in prayer. It was his last prayer. As he arose, several Indians rushed forward and pushed him down the hill. A crowd of savages gathered around him. One took away his hat, another, with a vicious swipe of a club, dispatched the priest from this life. Thus died the remarkable missionary, a messenger of peace, a noble, brave, and gifted man. Father Gregorio could not persuade the captain to remain any longer, and so the voyagers who remained sailed back to Mexico. The year was now 1549, and still neither Spain nor the church had a foothold in the land of flowers. Although it seemed foolishness to some, Spanish priests and sea captains continued to dream of a colony in Florida. True, every effort to build permanently had been repulsed by the Indians, and priests who had tried heaping charity on the heads of the reconciliatory savages had been cruelly slaughtered for their pains. Florida was too important, however, to write off. Not only did the state of the Indians demand continued missionary efforts, but also Florida still loomed large as ever on navigators' maps as the strategic key to the Gulf and Caribbean trade routes. Still another reason for conquering the Elusa Peninsula came from Spaniards in Cuba. So many native Cuban women had married Spanish soldiers. One of the bishops on the island reported, a Cuban male is lucky if he can get a wife 80 years old. The suggestion was therefore made by some that Florida would be an excellent source of Indian wives. Faced with the growing number of persistent and authoritative appeals to do something about Florida, the Spanish king, Philip II, decided to promote yet another voyage out of Mexico. To head the expedition, the Viceroy of Mexico chose Don Tristan de Luna de Arellano, son of the governor of Yucatan. Five priests and one lay brother, all members of the Order of St. Dominic, were appointed to accompany the undertaking and to see that the colonists followed the Viceroy's instructions not to antagonize the Indians, but to settle, and by good example, with works and with presence, to bring them to the knowledge of our holy faith and Catholic truth. The Viceroy wrote to Philip II to assure the sovereign that the Dominicans, named to the enterprise, were chosen because of their tried lives, learning, and doctrine, and because they were 
of an age to be able to work among the Indians and learn their languages. Their names were Pedro de Feria, the superior who resigned the priorship of the prospering house of St. Dominic in Mexico to undertake the Florida mission. Domingo de la Annunciation, a scholar said to have mastered all the Mexican dialects. Domingo de Salazar, later Bishop of the Philippines, Juan Mazulas, and Diego de San Domingo, both veterans of the Mexican missions, and Bartolome Mateos, the lay brother who had served as an artillery officer with Gonzalo Pizarro in Peru. Accounts differ regarding the size of De Luna's expedition that set sail from the port of Veracruz, Mexico on June 11, 1559. One account lists 11 ships carrying 500 soldiers, 1,000 settlers, and 240 horses. Another lists 15 ships carrying 1,500 soldiers and settlers, including women and children. The chronicles agree, however, on the main events. Favored by winds and weather, the expedition reached Florida's Gulf Coast after one month of sailing. On the eve of the Feast of the Assumption of the Blessed Virgin Mary, August 14th, the party landed at Pensacola Bay. De Luna wrote to King Philip, I set sail on June 11th and until the day of Our Lady of August, when it pleased God that the entire fleet should enter the port of Ichuse. As we entered on the day I say, I named the bay in your honor as Baja Filipina del Peruto de Santa Maria. So pleased was the Luna with the land he saw that he sent a shipload of settlers immediately to Spain in order to persuade other Spanish settlers to join his colony. Most of the other settlers were divided into two groups. De Luna, de Luna sent the first group to reconnoiter the countryside by land. The second went up a nearby river by small boats. Dominican priests accompanied both groups. De Luna instructed the reconnaissance parties to return to the harbor within three or four days, and the consequence that the men took with them only enough food to last that length of time. The reconnaissance lasted longer than expected and produced nothing of importance. By river and by land, the Spaniards saw only marshes and barren land. Food gave out after several days, and many of the men fell sick from eating roots and leaves that were not edible. The two parties made their way back to shore and toward the churning black clouds of a tropical storm. A fierce storm, probably a hurricane, bore down on the harbor out of the sea. Towering waves snapped anchor cables and battered the planks of all but two of the Spanish ships into tortured debris that piled up on the beach. Driving waves struck the beach with such force that those on shore had to flee inland for their lives. Many died aboard ship and on shore, including the Dominican lay brother Mateos. For the survivors, almost nothing remained of their store of provisions. Enough food for a year had sailed in those ships, nor of their pieces of gold and other articles of value that they intended to use in trading with the Indians. It was then, to scenes of utter destruction and desolation, that the two reconnaissance parties returned. But De Luna gathered the survivors and urged them to continue the colony at all costs. He left a captain with 50 men to guard the port and the two remaining ships and set out with the rest of the settlers in search of food. The story of the colony for the next year and a half was a story of successive expeditions for this purpose and of intermediate periods of raw hunger when priests and soldiers were reduced 
to eating their horses and chewing the leather of their harnesses. Human relations suffered under these pressures. In 1561, bitter dissension broke out among the Luna, the master of the camp, and the captains of the destroyed ships. At issue was the question whether another reconnaissance force should be sent into the interior. Fathers Domingo de la Anunciacion and Domingo de Salazar were troubled by the outburst of argument and anger, and they attempted to bring peace to the settlement by leading the soldiers and settlers each day in the recitation of a litany. It was the Easter season, and the two priests were afraid that many of the people, with anger and hatred in their hearts, would not be able to receive worthily the sacrament of penance and Holy Communion. Finally, Father Domingo de la Anunciacion decided to risk a prophecy. During the offering of Mass at the beachhead of Ikuse, on Palm Sunday in 1561, he turned suddenly towards the people with the sacred host in his hands and addressed the Luna. He questioned the governor about his faith. The governor stepped forward, knelt before the altar, and answered the priest's questions humbly. Father Domingo told the governor that if he would become reconciled with the captains and repent his sin in causing dissension and suffering among the people, before three days a ship would arrive in port with help to relieve the hunger of the colony. The governor was so struck by the confidence of the priest's voice, he turned to congregation and announced his belief in the prophecy. While Father Domingo finished the Mass, the governor confessed aloud before all the people that he had been wrong. He asked the captains, the master of the camp, the soldiers, and the settlers to forgive him for the mischief he had done. A reconciliation among everyone present followed before the altar. And lo, on the following day, a great ship appeared on the horizon. It was from New Spain, and it was laden with supplies for Tristan de Luna's men. It appeared that it was Father Domingo's prayer and prophecy which had been answered. The vessel that entered the harbor of Echus was commanded by Angel de Villafane, appointed by the Viceroy to replace de Luna. With Villafane was Father Gregorio de Beteta, who had accompanied the ill-fated expedition of Father Cancier to Tampa Bay 11 years before. Villafane and his men stayed only a short time in Florida. Then, leaving a garrison of 50 men at Echus, he left for Mexico by way of Havana, carrying the remainder of the Luna's colony, now numbering fewer than 300 persons. Father Domingo de la Anunciacion remained with the soldiers in Florida for six or seven months until it was determined that the settlement was definitely not capable of surviving. The soldiers and Father Domingo returned to Mexico, and another attempt to settle and Christianize Florida reached an inglorious end. In Spain, consternation greeted the news of the failure of Tristan de Luna's colony. The Spanish crown was displeased because, despite six well-planned attempts to do so, the banner of Castile and Leon had still not been permanently planted in the elusive sands of Florida. Spanish military and naval leaders were frustrated and embarrassed by the failure of their arms to secure and hold a beachhead in this peninsula. That the arrows of primitive Indians had succeeded in driving off Spanish warriors on several notable occasions was humble pie that proud conquistadors were not prepared to eat. The gold that mail-clad hidalgos hunted in the El Dorado of dreams never seemed less real than it did among the bogs and swamps of Florida. And those Spaniards who disguised their greed for precious metal under the mantle of religion 
found that evil indeed was its own imprisonment. No one was more disappointed, however, than the bishops and priests of Spain, mission-minded men who saw in Florida a field of souls ripe for the harvest. Every attempt to evangelize the Indians in this far-off country had proved to be an unstable and as impermanent as the waves that lapped the shores. Indeed, the historian of the abortive de Luna mission, Augustine de Villa y Padilla, recorded that the loss of life and expense incurred by that venture resulted in only one convert, an Indian woman of the Cusa nation baptized at the point of death. Despite the best efforts of the gallant, devoted, and self-sacrificing priests who endured indescribable privations in the American wild and set up their crosses and preached their unfaltering faith as best they could during temporary halts along overland treks, the savages of Florida remained plunged in the crassest idolatry and ignorance. When would the priest have another chance? Not for some time, decided Philip II. On September 23, 1561, the king expressed doubt that Florida was any longer worth the expense and effort of colonization. The king cited the opinion of Pedro Menendez de Aviles, Spain's most experienced naval commander, who argued that Florida's shoreline was too low and sandy, her countryside too poor in resources, and her harbors too shallow to permit practical settlement. Unless some crisis of state demanded it, there were to be no further attempts to colonize the peninsula. Such a crisis would arise, for example, if some new development endangered Spanish shipping in the Bahama Channel along Florida's east coast. The Spanish treasure fleet sailed twice each year from Havana, where the golden-laden galleons and caravels joined together for mutual protection. The fleets passed northward through the Bahama Channel or the Straits of Florida until they reached the area of Bermuda, when they set course for the Azores. From the Azores to Seville, the fleets were heavily guarded by men of war to prevent their capture by French pirates. The greatest danger on the voyage, however, came from navigating the Bahama Channel. This passage, discovered by Ponce de Leon on his first expedition, was only 39 miles wide at its narrowest part. Its waters were uncommonly rough. Reefs at its entrance threatened the keels of the heavily laden ships, and violent storms sometimes whipped the channel in the cauldrons. Various wreckages along the coast attested the channel's terrors to Spanish navigators. What then if, in addition to these natural hazards, French pirates should also infest this channel? And what if Menendez de Aviles should change his mind? Now in the book, The Cross in the Sand, Chapter 2, For Altar and Throne, 1565 to 1574. What was only a worry in the mind of the Spanish king in 1561 became a plain reality in the summer of 1564 when Huguenot adventurers under René de Goulan de Laudinier preempted the northeast coastline of Peninsular Florida and began construction of a military fort. Called Fort Caroline, the French outpost was situated near the mouth of River of May, St. John, where it commanded the northern discharge of the Bahama Channel. Now, if you're wondering what that is, if you're looking at the video, basically where that ship is in that photo, down towards the, the coast of Florida, that was the Bahama Channel. So all that right there was part of that. And enabled French warships to sally forth against the treasure ships with dangerous ease. 
La Denier's force consisted of soldiers, sailors, and artisans. No clergy or farmers were included. The presence of this warlike band constituted a direct challenge to the claims of Spain and Florida, which had been recognized, at least implicitly, by France in the Treaty of Cateau Cambrésis in 1559. Here, no doubt, was a crisis of state capable of changing the decision of a king and the mind of an admiral. And so it happened. When Philip II learned in the spring of 1565 that Jean Ribault, the great French sea captain, was assembling a fleet to reinforce Fort Caroline, he reacted angrily to what he considered a foreign encroachment upon the Spanish domain. A Spanish fleet, the king determined, must be dispatched at once to repel Ribault, destroy Fort Caroline, secure Florida again for Spain, and establish there at long last a permanent Catholic community. By coincidence, just the right man was seeking permission at that time to search for a son lost somewhere on the Florida shoreline. Pedro Menendez de Aviles, Captain General of the Indies Fleet, had served long and faithfully in the arduous campaigns of the Low Country and with the fleets that sailed regularly to and from New Spain. He knew the ports of the West Indies, the currents of the Caribbean, and the inviting shoreline of Florida. He also knew that Florida was populated by Indians whom no missionaries had yet been able to convert and hold for lack of a permanent mission base. Menendez heard the king's proposal. He thought of the possibility of finding his lost son of Spain's economic dependency upon the treasure fleets of the spiritual dangers of Florida's Indians that would come from heretical Frenchmen. Most of the Fort Caroline colonists were Huguenots and of the good that he himself could do as special viceroy of the church in that as yet unconquered and savage province. He told the king that he would go and accepted the office of Adelantado de la Florida. As Adelantado, he would be not only governor of the province, but direct representative of the sovereign himself. The royal asiento, or contract, given Menendez on March 20, 1565, plainly charged him with a missionary as well as a military responsibility. Quote, As we have in mind the good of the salvation of those Indian souls, the king declared, We have decided to give the order to send religious persons to instruct the said Indians and those people who are Christians and are subjects, so that they may live among and talk to the natives, that they may inhabit those lands and provinces of Florida, and so that the Indians by association and conversation with them, might more easily be taught our holy Catholic faith and be led to good practices and customs and to perfect behavior. On June 29, 1565, Captain General Menendez sailed out of the port of Cadiz with 19 ships and 1,100 men bound for Florida's east coast. Almost at once, his fleet encountered severe storms, which forced its return. Several days later, when the storms had abated, the admiral set sail again, this time with an enlarged company of 1,504 soldiers, sailors, locksmiths, millers, silversmiths, tanners, sheep shearers, and farmers, some with their wives and children. An additional 1,000 soldiers and settlers were to follow later from 
Asturias, and Vizcaya. Menendez had had the good sense to recruit men skilled in tilling the soil, animal husbandry, and the hunting of game. It was for lack of these skills that earlier expeditions had shown such lamentable inability to live off the land. Chief among the passengers were four secular priests with faculties to hear confessions. In these four men lay the church's hope in planting the cross permanently in Florida's sands. We know three of their names. Francisco Lopez de Mendoza Grajales, Rodrigo Garcia de Trujillo, and Pedro de Ruida. As the Spanish vessels plowed westward through the Atlantic, Father Lopez, who was fleet chaplain, made notes of the voyage. He recorded the fleet's arrival at the Canary Islands on Wednesday, July 5th, where the ships took on wood and water. The following Sunday, he noted the expedition raised sail again for the island of Dominica in the Caribbean. Gonzalo Solis de Maras, a brother-in-law of Menendez, also made notes of the voyage. Having set sail from the Canaries, within a short time a fierce tempest arose, and the flagship with the Patachi broke away from the fleet without being seen any more, and the next day a shallop turned back to land, for she was leaking badly and could not be helped. Only five vessels remained together. Father Lopez was on one of them. The five vessels which remained of our fleet had a prosperous voyage the rest of the way, thanks to our Lord and His Blessed Mother. Up to Friday the 20th, we had very fine weather, but at 10 o'clock that day a violent wind arose, which by 2 in the afternoon had become the most frightful hurricane one could imagine. The sea, which rose to the very clouds, seemed about to swallow us up alive, and such was the fear of apprehension of the pilot and other sailors that I pushed myself hard in exhorting my brethren and companions to repentance. I represented to them the passion of our Lord Jesus Christ, His justice, and His mercy, and with so much success that I passed the night in confessing them. The next day, the storm roared even louder, and towering waves broke over the decks, forcing the captain of the ship on which Lopez sailed to throw overboard the cooking apparatus many barrels of water, seven millstones, the reserve rigging, and the ship's cable. The chaplain wrote, The captains then resolved to throw all the chests of the men into the sea, but the distress of the soldiers was so great that I felt constrained to throw myself at his feet and beg him not to do it. I reminded him that we ought to trust to the great mercy of our Lord, and, like a true Christian, he showed confidence in God and spared the luggage. When Jesus Christ permitted the return of day, we looked at each other as at men raised from the dead, and though our suspense during Saturday was no less than that of the preceding night, light itself was a consolation to us. When night, however, found us again still in the same dangerous situation, we thought we must surely perish, and during the whole night I preached to the crew and exhorted them to put their trust in God. Sunday morning came, and you can fancy how we rejoiced to see daylight once more, although the storm continued unabated all day, and until noon of the following Monday, when our Lord deigned to have compassion and mercy on us and calmed the fury of the winds and waves. On August 5th, the ship on which Father Lopez sailed, with at least one other, made a landfall at the island of Dominica, where a small boat 
put ashore for wood and water. Three days later, the crews weighed anchor and set a compass heading for San Juan de Puerto Rico, which they reached on August 9th. In the harbor, they sighted three other ships of their scattered fleet, including the flagship San Paleo of the Adelantado. Loud cries of joy resounded on all sides, Lopez wrote, and we thanked the Lord that he had permitted us to find each other again. But it would be impossible for me to tell how it all happened. The Spanish voyagers paused several days in Puerto Rico to replenish their store of provisions and to take on board horses and additional men that the king had agreed to furnish from the island garrison. Father Lopez was asked to remain by Puerto Rican settlers. They offered him an attractive pastorate, but he refused, as he wrote later, I wanted to see if by refusing a personal benefit for the love of Jesus, he would not grant me a greater, since it is my desire to serve our Lord and his blessed mother. Pedro Menendez, meantime, had to face the problems created by his scattered fleet. The general was lacking over two-thirds of his expeditory force, and he had no way of knowing when or if the remaining ships would arrive. He deliberated for a time whether he should await the balance of his fleet or press on towards Florida. Solis de Maras was with him when he made his decision, and he recorded it in these words. Seeing that the people who were with him were persons of much reliance and bravery, despite the fact that many of the soldiers were not trained, he summoned all the captains to a council and told them that he had not taken that expedition under his charge through vanity or personal interest, but for the honor of God, who already appeared to be manifesting his mercies since to show his hand visibly, he had permitted that the powerful fleet which sailed from Spain should arrive near Florida in an impaired condition in order that the success of whatever famous action could be achieved should be attributed to him. Trusting in the divine will, he said, he held it proper that they should sail at once to Florida. Trusting in the divine will, he said, he held it proper that they should sail at once for Florida without waiting for or seeking further aid. With approval from all hands, Menendez weighed anchor on August 15th and led his ships to sea again northward towards the Bahama Channel. On Monday, August 27th, Father Lopez noted, While we were near the entrance to the Bahama Channel, God showed to us a miracle from heaven. He described it, about nine o'clock in the evening, a comet appeared, which showed itself directly above us, a little eastward, giving so much light that it might have been taken for the sun. It went towards the west, that is, towards Florida, and its brightness lasted long enough to repeat two craters. The very next day, the voyagers sighted land. It was Cape Carnaval, since 1965, Cape Kennedy. The thin finger of land that projected out from the center of Florida's east coast. It was August 28th, St. Augustine's Day, wrote Solis de Maras, on which they sighted the land of Florida, all of them kneeling, saying the Te Deum Laudamus. They praised our Lord, all the people repeating their prayers, entreating our Lord to give them victory in all things. And Father Lopez wrote, Thanks to God and the prayers of the Blessed Virgin, we soon had the pleasure of seeing land and found ourselves actually in Florida. Pedro Menendez himself recorded, We discovered this land off Cape Canaveral, which is the latitude of 28 degrees, at the entrance of the Bahama Channel, and we sailed along the coast, seeking that harbor of the River of May, site of Fort Caroline, 
as far as 29 degrees, for such was the report I had, that the Frenchmen were between 28 and 29 degrees. Not finding them, we went on as far as 29 and a half degrees, slightly south of the site of the present marine land. And having seen fires on the shore on September 2nd, I ordered a captain ashore with 20 soldiers to try to get an interpreter among the Indians, that they might give us knowledge of that harbor. And so the captain who went ashore joined them and talked to them. And they told him by signs that the harbor was further on in a higher latitude towards the north. Coasting along the shoreline farther north, the Adelantado came upon the harbor, which the French called the River of Dolphins. The Indians called the site Saloy. It was, wrote Solis de Maras, a good harbor with a good beach, to which he, Menendez, gave the name of St. Augustine, because that saint's feast was the day on which he had first sighted land. The date was now September 4th. Menendez proceeded still further up the coast and reached the mouth of the River of May early the next morning. There he sighted four French warships, reinforcements for Fort Caroline. Jean Rabault had won the race from Europe. Worried that the enemy force was strong enough to prevent the founding of a Spanish settlement, the Adelantado's Council of Captains urged him to return to the Caribbean to await the balance of his fleet. Menendez, however, decided to engage the French ships at once. In making that decision, he set the seal of fate on 1565 as the year of his first settlement. For in the proposition of his captains, he would not have returned to the harbor of St. Augustine until March of the following year. A brief and inconsequential battle followed. Father Lopez recorded that, notwithstanding all the guns we fired at them, we did not sink one of their ships. The Spaniards, too, withdrew with no losses, and Menendez, having satisfied for now his military honor, decided to retire. He put his flagship under full sail toward the newly named harbor of St. Augustine and arrived there just off the Indian village of Saloy on September 6th. Father Lopez described the sequence of events leading to the actual founding of the parish and garrison of St. Augustine. Two companies of infantry now disembarked on September 6th, that the captains Andreas Soyes Patino and that of Captain Juan de San Vicente, who is a very distinguished gentleman. They were well received by the Indians, who gave them a large house belonging to a chief and situated near the shore of the river. Immediately, Captain Patino and Captain San Vicente, both men of talent and energy, ordered the entrenchment to be built around this house, with a slope of earth and fascines, these being the only means of defense possible in that country, where stones are nowhere to be found. The energy and talents of those two brave captains, joined to the efforts of their brave soldiers, who had no tools with which to work the earth, accomplished the construction of this fortress of defense, and when the general disembarked, he was quite surprised with what had been done. On Saturday the 8th, the general landed with many banners spread to the sound of trumpets and salutes of artillery. As I had gone ashore that evening before, I took a cross and went to meet him, singing the hymn, Te Deum Laudamus. The general, followed by all who accompanied him, marched up to the cross, knelt and kissed it. A large number of Indians watched this proceedings and imitated all they saw done. 
A solemn Mass was then offered in honor of the Nativity of the Blessed Virgin Mary, the feast day observed then as now on September 8th. Solus de Maras records that after Mass, the Adelanto had the Indians fed and dined himself. It was the first community act of religion and thanksgiving in the first permanent settlement in the land. It was also the beginning of the parish of St. Augustine and of the permanent service of the Catholic Church in what is now the United States. Menendez christened the new settlement San Agustin, or St. Augustine. It was September 8th, 1565. Traditionally, the Spanish representative of the king would go to the flag, plant the flag in the, in the ground, and proclaim the land in the name of the king. He, however, went over to Father Lopez and knelt down and kissed the cross. So he proclaimed the land in nombre de Dios, in the name of God, before the name of his king. And uh, Lopez observed the natives imitated all they saw done. Now there is a picture for you. Father Lopez then conducted a mass of thanksgiving and Menendez ordered that a meal be prepared for everyone, including the natives. This was 55 years before the pilgrims even arrived in Plymouth. A few years ago, Dr. Michael Gannon drew fire when he called this meal the true first Thanksgiving. There was a guy who called me from WBZ in Boston. He said, while I'm talking, do you realize that there's an emergency meeting of uh, select men at Plymouth to contend with this new information that there were Spaniards in Florida before there were Englishmen in Massachusetts. And then he said, well, you know how you've become known up here in New England? I said, no, he said, the Grinch who stole Thanksgiving. <laughs> the Spaniards christened their landing site Nombre de Deus, name of God, by which name the site is still known today. Shortly after the landing, Menendez and his priests erected there, among the Redmen of Saloy, the first Christian mission to the North American Indian. Nombre de Dios became the baptismal name of a new nation. From that place, for 198 uninterrupted years, priests and laymen would carry Christianity and civilization into the wild interior. First, diocesan, then Jesuit, and finally Franciscan missionaries would drop their lamps of faith and knowledge into the darkness as far as Virginia to the north and Texas to the west and write their names into one of the least known but most heroic chapters of American and Catholic history. According to traditions maintained by the Spanish population of St. Augustine over the next two centuries, the landing site was situated on the mainland on the north side of a creek called Marcaris known today as Hospital Creek, about a quarter of a mile north of the city gates of the eventual Cuidad de San Agustin that was marked out and erected by Menendez's successors in the 16th and 17th centuries. Both the location of the landing site and the reverence with which it was regarded by the Spaniards of San Agustin were indicated by cardiographer Juan Joseph Alexio de la Puente, in a carefully drawn map of the city executed in 1769. The map's key points out the place and reads, in part, place called Nombre de Dios, which is the name where the first Mass was said on September 8, 1565, 
when the Spaniards under the command of the Adelantado Pedro Menendez de Aviles set out to conquer these provinces and afterwards an Indian village was built there with a chapel in which was placed an image of Maria Santissima de la Leche. Three days after landing, Menendez rode home to Philip II. As for myself, your majesty, may be assured that if I had a million ducats, more or less, I would spend it all upon this undertaking, because it is of great service to God our Lord for the increase of our holy Catholic faith and for the service of your majesty. And therefore, I have offered to our Lord all that he may give me in this world, all that I may acquire and possess in order to plant the gospel in this land for the enlightenment of its natives, and in like manner I pledge myself to your majesty. Although it had startled many readers of Spanish Florida history to discover that men warred mercilessly against each other in the 16th century, as they do unremittingly in our own, it is a fact that Menendez accomplished with dispatch and thoroughness the military portion of his mission. Marching overland in mid-September, Menendez and his 500 fighting men captured Fort Caroline and slew the entire garrison, excepting women and children and youths not under arms. Father Lopez observed that the Spaniards found many packs of playing cards with the figure of the host and chalice on the backs and many saints with crosses on their shoulders and other playing cards burlesquing things of the church. Soon afterwards, catching Jean Rebolt and two groups of shipwrecked soldiers at Matanzas, inlet south of St. Augustine, Menendez exacted their unconditional surrender and then coolly gave them to the sword, sparing only the Catholics among them and use not under arms, about 17 in all. This act was committed with the same sang-froid of French cruiser captains off the coast of Holland, of Jacques Sauré, who had slaughtered the residents of Havana several years before, and of Dominique de Gorges, who would wreak French revenge on the Spanish occupiers of Fort Caroline, renamed San Mateo, only three years later. The Adelantado returned then to St. Augustine, wrote Solis de Maras, where some persons considered him cruel and others that he acted as a very good captain should. Historians in that city are still judging him both ways. This charge of his mandate, military necessity, inability to feed the French captives from his meager stores, over a hundred Spaniards would die from starvation during the coming winter. These appear to have been reasons which led Menendez to carry out his instructions so completely. Although France and Spain were not formally at war, police actions of this sort were common occurrences where national ambitions collided in foreign lands or on the seas. They were cruel times. One can imagine the fate of Menendez had he fallen into the hands of Sir Francis Drake. To Menendez, it seemed necessary in this instance to sacrifice mercy to justice, and if that marked him with an indelible stain, as the Catholic historian John Gilmare Shea concluded in the last century, it was the sole stain on an otherwise admirable breastplate. In October of the same year, Menendez petitioned the Society of Jesus in Spain for additional missionaries to the Indians, who seemed everywhere friendly and receptive to the diocesan pioneers. He assured Father Diego de Avellaneda, provincial of the Jesuits in Andalusia, that while he waited on the Jesuits, he would dispose the Indians by every kindness to receive their doctrine gladly. 
in voyages along the Florida Peninsula and up the Atlantic coast in 1565 and the year following, Menendez erected crosses at various points and left Spaniards of marked religious zeal to instruct the surrounding tribes in the elements of Christianity. Most of these lay missions were administered from military outposts, which by 1567 ran in a chain from the fort of St. Felipe at Santa Elena, Paris Island, South Carolina, around to the Gulf Coast of the Florida Peninsula. All of this territory and more was referred to in official documents of the time as Las Provincias de la Florida. The various districts were usually designated by their Indian names. South Carolina was Orista. Georgia along the coast was Guale, and the vast interior was called Tama. The northeast corner of the Florida Peninsula around St. Augustine was known as Timucua. South of Timucua, in the region of Cape Canaveral, was Aiz. Bordering Aiz to the northwest was Putano. The southeast Atlantic coast was called Tequesta. The southwest Gulf Coast was known as Calusa or Carlos. Within this stretch of shoreline, Menendez had three permanent settlements served by diocesan priests, St. Augustine, San Mateo, Fort Caroline, and Santa Elena, and a line of forts at Ais, St. Lucie, Tequesta, Biscayne Bay, Carlos, Charlotte Harbor, and Tocobaga, Tampa. Another settlement attempted on the Chesapeake had failed. At St. Augustine, Father Lopez was cura, or pastor, named to that office by Menendez with the concurrence of the Bishop of Santiago de Cuba. In June 1566, a relief expedition arrived in the harbor with five more diocesan priests who were placed under Father Lopez's direction. Riding to Spain in 1567, Lopez styled himself Vicar of Florida and complained of a slight illness. We catch his name in the records once more in 1569, when he interceded for a group of mutineers at St. Augustine. After that, the pioneer cleric disappears into the twilight of history. There is no known record of his death and burial. The first authenticated missionary success with the North American Indians can be attributed to Father Sebastian Montero, one of the five diocesan priests who arrived at St. Augustine with the relief expedition of 1566. Father Montero, native of Achia, came as chaplain to the company of Captain Juan Pardo and accompanied Pardo and 300 men to their station at St. Felipe, the fort of Santa Elena. In August 1566, Pedro Menendez ordered Pardo to make an overland reconnaissance of Arista in the direction of New Spain or Mexico. The Adelantado directed him to visit the Indian Cachiques, or chieftains, to instruct the chain of inland forts and to see that the Indians became Christians, as Solas de Maras recorded. Pardo departed from Santa Elena on November 1st with 125 soldier volunteers and his chaplain, Father Montero. In the course of their march westward, Pardo and his men explored the Cypress lands that lie between the Broad and Edisto rivers, visited a series of Indian towns that the Soto had passed through 26 years before, and halted finally at the snow crown barrier of the Chachuja Ridge at present-day Oconee County, South Carolina. Here was an important Indian village of Joara, or 
Juada, the Oxala of the Soto. At the gateway of the Appalachians, Pardo renamed the place Cuenca after his native city in Spain, built a blockhouse where he stationed a sergeant with 30 men and began to march back towards Santa Alana. Following the course of several copious streams, in the vicinity of what is now Anderson County, South Carolina, the Spaniards stumbled on the great town of Guatari, royal residence of two noble cachicas, or chieftainesses, of the watery tribe. Here I stayed 15 or 16 days, more or less, Pardo wrote later, where those chieftains asked me to give them someone to instruct them, and so I gave them the priest of my company and four soldiers. Until very recently, this was the last word about Father Montero that history had. Indeed, even his name was lost to history and remained unknown for most of the next four centuries. Now we know from recently discovered documents that Sebastian Montero remained among the Guitari Indians for six years and that he enjoyed a considerable success with them. Witnesses reported later in Seville that the priest taught the Indians four basic prayers, the Our Father, the Hail Mary, the Creed, and the Hail Holy Queen, and other Christian things that are necessary to them for their salvation. He taught them to worship regularly on Sundays and Holy Days, to abstain from meat on Fridays, and to observe the commandments. Of equal interest, Montero taught them the Spanish language, including the skills of reading and writing, with the result, as one Spanish soldier testified, that many of them understood much of it through his direction and instruction, especially the principal caciques, with whom he worked a good deal. Captain Pardo returned to Gutiari on another and longer expedition in 1567 and renamed the town Salamanca. During the second march, Pardo marked out a line of advance around the northern and western flanks of Santa Elena and erected a string of garrison forts that stretched as far as the Chattahoochee River. Not only did Spanish arms now prevail throughout this great Indian region, but the cross of Christianity as well, for Pardo commanded the soldiers in his garrisons to teach them, the Indians, and let them know how they are to give service to God our Lord. Unfortunately and unaccountably, that interior chain of outposts was abandoned in the following year, and Father Montero himself withdrew from Guatari in 1572 for reasons of failing health. As subsequent events turned out, the priest from Achija was the last, as he had been the first priest missionary in the Orista back country of La Florida. He seems to have left there no traces of himself nor of his labors. Still, it can be written now, belatedly, that Father Montero Aguatari produced the first evangelical success to which the Infant Mission Center could lay claim. In September 1566, the Jesuits finally came to Florida. Just shortly before, Menendez had written a complaining letter to the Jesuit provincial of Andalusia, saying of the Indians, I had told them that these religious Jesuits were coming on the next ships and would soon talk with them and instruct them on becoming Christians. And now, as no religious came, the natives think that I am a liar, and some of them have become angry and accused me of deluding them. And the unfriendly chiefs laugh at them and at me. It was in a Flemish pinnacle that the first Jesuit band arrived September 14th near the mouth of the St. John's River. Father Pedro Martinez, superior, 
Father Juan Rogel and Brother Francisco Villarreal. Unexplainably, their vessel had missed the harbor of St. Augustine and Father Martinez with six Flemish seamen and two Spanish soldiers rowed ashore to ask questions. While they explored the coastline on foot, a storm at sea drove their ship away. The party on shore was left without food and getting into their skiff again, Martinez and his companions coasted along the beach to look for Indians. They found both Indians and food and managed to stay alive until September 28th. On that day, while begging fish at a village on St. Juan Island, they were suddenly attacked by 40 Indians and all but four cruelly killed. Father Martinez was strangled underwater and then clubbed. According to one of the survivors, the priest was not heard to utter a sound, but grasped the crucifix on his breast as he fell. His death was a martyrdom, and his name was afterwards invoked with awe among the members of his order. But for the first Jesuit mission to La Florida, it was not an auspicious beginning. Father Rogel and the lay brother had remained on board the ship during Martina's fateful venture to shore. Now the crew of their ship, desperately hungry and not knowing where they were, sailed south towards Havana, which they reached successfully, and where rescue ships sent by Menendez discovered them. Early in 1567, the priest and lay brother were transported to Florida, Father Rogel to the military outpost near Charlotte Harbor, where he began work among the surrounding Calusa tribes, and Brother Villarreal to the point near the present city of Miami, where he undertook a difficult mission among the Tequesta Indians. News of Father Martinez's martyrdom reached Spain and caused a large number of Jesuits to volunteer for the Florida missions. From these applicants, the Jesuit general selected a band of three priests, three lay brothers, and five novices. Father Bautista de Segura was appointed superior. Segura and his companions left for Florida in 1568. On their arrival, June 9th, a plan for evangelizing Florida's Indians was carefully worked out. The missionaries distributed themselves along the eastern seaboard and resolved to stay at their posts until permanent missions were established and put into a flourishing state. By 1570, however, it was clear that this resolution was more difficult in realization than the Jesuits had expected. The Indians were not accepting Christianity with the quickness and fervor expected. A reorganization of the Jesuit effort resulted, and Father Rogel, with one of the newcomers of 1568, was sent to search for better promise among the Indians further north on the Orista coastline in what is now South Carolina. Rogel wrote back after nine months that he had managed to bring the Indians to belief in the Trinity and to a certain understanding of the cross. However, when he began to preach to them about the evil character of the devil, they would have none of it. Quote, When I began to treat of this, so great was the vexation and hatred which they directed on my words, they never again would come to listen to me. And they said to my people that they were very angry and did not believe a thing I said since I spoke ill of the devil. Probably the main obstacle that faced the Jesuit missionaries was the migratory nature of these primitive peoples. The missionaries had difficulty keeping track of the various tribes who moved constantly from place to place according to the seasons or hunting conditions, from pine woods to crop-raising fields to acorn-gathering sites. A good statement of the problem was sent by Father Rogel to Spain on December 9, 1570. Quote, 
In order to obtain fruit in the blind and sad souls of these provinces, it is necessary, first of all, to order the Indians to come together and live in towns and cultivate the earth, collecting sustenance for the entire year. And after they have thus become very settled, then to begin the preaching. Unless this is done, although the religious remain among them for 50 years, they will have no more fruit than we in our four years among them, which is none at all, nor even a hope, nor the semblance of it. In September 1570, Father Segura traveled north with another priest, three novices, and three lay brothers to establish a mission at a site near the present city of Fredericksburg, Virginia. The adventure ended in tragedy. On February 4th and 9th, 1571, only five months after the mission began, the missionaries were massacred by the Indians they had come to help. The martyrs' names were Father Segura and Luis de Quiros, and brothers Gabriel de Solos, Juan Batista Mendez, Pedro de Linares, Sancho Zabalos, Gabriel Gomez, and Cristobal Redondo. The only survivor of the massacre to tell the tale was a little Indian boy named Alonzo, who had accompanied the missionaries to Virginia from Santa Elena. For the Jesuits, this was an ultimate frustration. They had not a single successful mission to show for all their labor. In 1572, Jesuit authorities in Spain decided to abandon altogether the mission field of Florida. The few remaining missionaries were recalled to Mexico. Their order would not return again to Florida until 1743, when two Jesuit priest explorers conducted a short-lived and unsuccessful mission in the Keys. The Jesuit failure was a keen disappointment to Pedro Menendez. The Adelantado had expected the Society of Jesus to succeed where perhaps another order might have failed. Now this expectation had been dashed, and except for a small and tenacious band of diocesan priests, there was no missionary force in Florida to care for the unnumbered thousands of idolatrous Indians. The Jesuit withdrawal was all the more bitter for the fact that Menendez himself had expended every effort and every resource at his command to fulfill the counsels made to him three years before in a personal brief from Pope St. Pius V. Quote, you understand we know well, the pontiff had written him, that those Indians should be ruled and governed with good judgment and prudence, that those who are still weak in the faith may be encouraged and fortified, and that the idolaters may be converted and receive the faith of Christ, that the converts who know the benefits of divine mercy may praise God, and that those who are still unbelievers, guided by the example of those who have been rescued from their blindness, may follow them and be brought to a knowledge of the truth. But there is nothing more important for the conversion of these idolatrous Indians than to make every effort to keep them from being scandalized by the vices and bad habits of those who go to those lands from Europe. This is the keystone of the arch of this holy undertaking, and in it is contained the very essence of your pious aim. Now in 1572, Menendez too went home, called there by Philip II to direct the organization of an invincible armada with which Spain hoped to clear the Flanders coast of pirates. He had crossed the ocean seven times in the interests of his colony. Now he crossed it for the last time, exhausted and impoverished. St. Augustine in Florida had cost him his health and his entire personal fortune. Apparently, he counted it no special loss. A soldier in his command said of him, quote, 
He considered nothing but the service of God and of His Majesty, without looking to human interest. On September 8, 1574, while busy with his fleet at Santander in northern Spain, the Adelantado wrote to his nephew in Florida, quote, After the salvation of my soul, there is nothing I desire more than to be in Florida, and there in my days saving souls. This is my desire, and it means all my happiness. May the Lord bring it about as he can, if he sees it necessary. But nine days later, the conqueror of Florida was dead. The sunburnt, bearded body was removed from its steel corslets and dressed, according to his wish, in the simple habit of a Franciscan. Only the gentler side of his nature showed to those who viewed his remains. But the epitaph that was placed upon his grave at Aviles had the sound of trumpets. For to such a man, Spaniards insisted, the nation owned a monument, history a book, and the muses a poem. Glory has grooved the furrows of thy brow, and seemed thy cheek, illustrious cavalier. The scars of wars and scorching suns appear on that bold front that none could force to bow. Jose Maria de Heredia. Chapter 3, Black Robes and Brown Robes, 1574-1606 to To the side of the black cassock diocesan priest, there came the Florida in 1573, the first in a long and gallant line of Franciscan fathers or friars minor. Pedro Menendez had arranged for the introduction of these sons of St. Francis into the mission country soon after it was abandoned by the Jesuits, and the first band of the brown Robe friars reached La Florida at Santa Elena. In the beginning, the Franciscans met the same obstacles in dealing with the Indians as had frustrated the Jesuit effort, and their labors seemed to have been confined to the garrison towns. In 1578, we find mention of a friar Alonso Cavillas at St. Augustine and a friar Francisco del Castillo at Santa Elena. During these first years, the friars never numbered more than four or five. Not until 1595 would the Order of Friars Minor launch a large-scale concerted effort to win Florida's native population for the church. How well they would then succeed is attested by the fact that only 100 years after their coming, they could account for over 30 thriving missions at which 26,000 Indians had been taught the Catechism of Christianity and the rudiments of European arts and crafts. The hardships they met and overcame in working this triumph begged the imagination, one reason why their story is still so little known. Another reason is that there is no consecutive chronicle kept by the Florida Franciscans themselves. The history of their labors must be pieced together from royal decrees, memorials, reports, letters, and fragments of a similar nature. But there is enough information of this kind to support the judgment that the Spanish mission system in Florida was one of the most heroic and successful humanitarian efforts for the elaboration and spiritual development of backward people that the American nation has experienced. The Order of Friars Minor, founded by St. Francis of Assisi in 1209, was a mendicant order devoted to the ideal of holy poverty, as such, its members were forbidden to possess private property, ride horseback, the mark of knighthood, wear other than the supple robe, cow, and sandals of an Italian peasant, or have incomes beyond the alms 
that they daily begged. Yet in Florida, where no gold or other riches had been discovered, and where the colonists themselves lived from hand to mouth, for a friar to live on alms alone was impossible. Recognizing this, King Philip II stipulated that each friar on the missions should receive from the local governor three reels a day for his maintenance, as well as his clothing, medicine, and the necessary furnishings and articles required for Mass. The friars, for their part, always referred to the royal honorarium as the alms which your majesty gives us. The crown also provided for all the needs of the missions themselves and for the transportation of the friars between Spain and Florida and between St. Augustine and the individual missions along the coastline and in the interior. The crown, in fact, exercised direct jurisdiction over the entire mission process by virtue of the Patronato Real de Indias, or Royal Patronage of the Indies, granted to the Spanish sovereigns in 1508 by Pope Julius II, the king was, for all intents and purposes, the vicar of the Pope in the ecclesiastical administration of the Indies, including La Florida. Missionaries to Florida were named by him. Their stipends or alms were paid by him. Their chapels, churches, and friaries were erected at his expense. The same royal jurisdiction applied to secular priests and to their parishes. One cannot read the multitude of chedulas, asientos, and capitulations issued by the kings of Spain to the long succession of explorers and governors who came to Florida and to the missionaries who accompanied them without being struck by the prominence given to the command that they provide for the health, welfare, and conversion of the New World savages. No historian of note has questioned the sincerity of that command. Vast sums of the crown's money were spent for this purpose, and there was no expectation of financial return. While the closeness of the church-state alliance might not suit the taste of a later time, still it was probably the only really effective way to get the mission work done. The first significant band of Franciscan missionaries arrived in St. Augustine on September 29, 1587. Numbering 13 priests, the band was led by Friar Alonso Reynoso and launched Friar Alonso Escobedo, a noted scholar, from whose metrical narrative, La Florida, we learn many of the facts about the group. Governor Pedro Menendez Marquez, a nephew of the first governor, was so pleased by the missionaries coming that he expressed himself in these moving lines. Franciscan fathers, so you have come from the distant parts of the east to settle this poor and barren nest where the sun's fair face is hid. What humbly now I beg you all is to teach these western tribes who look upon Satan as a friend, but their maker God regard as foe. The missionaries were assigned to various nearby Indian towns. Friar Escobedo went to the pioneer mission Nombre de Dios, where he soon had 100 converts. The other priests, with the exception of Father Reynoso, went to missions under the names of San Sebastian, San Antonio, San Pedro, and San Juan de Puerto. Father Reynoso returned to Spain to seek more priests. Curiously, few of these Franciscan arrivals stayed very long. In 1592, there were only three Franciscan priests and two lay brothers in the entire province. Perhaps because of the poverty of the land, 
Father Reynoso's recruits decided that the mission effort was doomed. It was true that the missions, like the garrison towns, were suffering at the time under severe financial strain. The new colony had not proved to be self-supporting. There were no prospects of mines, agriculture was poor, and aid from the mother country had been slow. Already, Santa Elena had been abandoned in 1586 because of economic difficulties and incessant Indian raids. Then on September 23, 1595, a new band of Franciscans arrived who were destined to remain in Florida for many years. With this group and with the new and efficient Franciscan superior in Florida, Friar Francisco Maron, the Friars Missionary Program began in earnest. The missionaries were distributed along the coastline north of St. Augustine in Indian towns where already 1,500 Christians could be counted. There were five missions to the Timuquan Indians who inhabited the coastline between St. Augustine and what is now the Georgia border. In Georgian territory, there were missions along the Gual Indians at what are now Cumberland Island, St. Simon Island, Jekyll Island, and St. Catherine's Island. The friars who went out to the missions in 1595 were personally escorted by the governor who knelt to kiss the hands of the missionaries before the assembled Indians as a sign of the sacred authority granted to these bearers of the word of God. A mission where there was a resident friar was called by the Franciscans a doctrina, a subsidiary mission station where the friar visited on Sundays and Holy Days was called a visita. A friar on the missions was called a doctrinero, that is, one who taught Christian doctrine at the doctrina. The mission buildings themselves were of simple, even primitive construction. Pine tree trunks held up the roofs and walls, and between these rough-hewn pillars, small posts were interwoven with horizontal wattles tied with leather thongs, Clay was then daubed on the latest work, and when dry, it was whitewashed on the interior. Palmetto thatching served as roofing, and wide eaves provided outside shade from the sun. Because of the scarcity of stone and the unrelieved poverty of the colony, this wattle and dub type of construction would characterize the Florida Mission compounds throughout their entire history. A consoling sign of progress came two years later when 22 caciques came to St. Augustine to pledge their allegiance to the governor. Spain now had effective control over the coastline from Cape Canaveral in the south to Santa Elena Sound in the north and over the seaboard tribes that inhabited those regions. Prospects for working amicably with the Indians looked bright. Missionaries could be sent safely, it seemed, to any point in that vast stretch of wilderness. In the midst of this brightening picture, there occurred a sudden and violent uprising by the Wale Indians in present-day Georgia, called variously the Wale Revolt and the Wanilo Revolt after the warrior Wanilo, son of the chief of Talamato. On Peace Creek in McIntosh County, Georgia, it was an eruption of violence so serious that it threatened the continual presence of the Spaniards in Florida. It was a blow to the Franciscans particularly for several of the friars the uprising brought martyrdom. The trouble began when Friar Pedro de Corpa, the priest at Talamato, reprimanded Juanilo for having other wives in addition to the one to whom he was lawfully married. Father Corpa told the warrior 
that there was a fundamental conflict between the savage and the Christian ways of life, and that if he desired to remain a Christian, he would have to give up his polygamous habits. Juanilo resisted this instruction, however, and continued to possess his several wives. To the scandal of all the newly made Christians, Father Corpa, with the approval and aid of Father Blas Rodriguez at the nearby mission at Tupiqui, undertook a drastic measure to correct the wayward Indian. He deprived him of his right to succeed to the chiefship of Wale when his father should die and transferred the right instead to another heir. The results of this measure were not such as the two priests hoped for. On the morning of September 13, 1597, with two other Indians who were angered by the missionaries' attempt to enforce monogamy among the natives, Juanilo entered Father Corpa's dwelling while he was at prayer and fractured his head with a machana, the Indian club. The priest's head was impaled on the point of a lance and set up for the gaze of all at the landing place. The remainder of the body was buried in the woods. The following day, Juanilo persuaded the chiefs and seven other villages to join him in a murderous campaign against the Franciscans. On September 16th, they accosted Father Rodriguez at Tupiqui and told him that he, too, would have to die. The priest asked the insurgents for time enough to offer a last mass, which he was allowed to do while his executioners sat waiting on the chapel floor. Following his mass, Father Rodriguez distributed his few effects among the local Indians, admonished them to observe God's law, then knelt to receive the mortal blow. The Indians despoiled the priest's room of its sacred vessels and furnishings and left his corpse a prey to bird and beast. Later, a Christian Indian took the body to the woods and buried it. On St. Catherine's, or Wally Island, Father Miguel de Anon and a lay brother Antonio de Barajos patiently waited their own deaths. When scouts informed the missionaries that the rebel Indians were close by, Father Anon celebrated Mass and gave Holy Communion to Brother Antonio. Then, on September 19th, they too fell under the Macana. Faithful Christian Indians buried the remains at the base of a towering wooden cross that Anun had erected on the island. A military expedition sent afterwards by Governor Gonzalez Menendez de Conzo exhumed the friars' bodies and brought them back to St. Augustine, where they were reinterred with great reverence. Another martyr was Friar Francisco de Verascola, the missionary at Santo Domingo de Asao, known as the Catabrian Giant for his large physical proportions. Father Verascalo was in St. Augustine to obtain supplies when the rebellion broke out. On the day he returned, two of the rebels took him in their arms as if to welcome him, while the others killed him with an axe. In Wale territory, in modern-day Georgia, resistance to these Christian missionaries had grown. After a generation of people had been subjected to uh, proselytization and conversion, uh, some of the groups really became very hostile, particularly the Wale people. The Wale uprising happened just four months after Governor Cancio arrived. It was allegedly started by the heir apparent to the paramount chief of Tolamato. He was known as Don Juanillo, or Little John. Don Juanillo wanted to take a second wife. 
And the resident Franciscan friar at Tolomato said, I don't think so. You've been baptized, you're going to behave as a good Christian, and you'll be quite content with the one wife that you have. The friar threatened him with preventing his rise to chief of the tribe when his father died, and that angered the young man just as much as being told he could only have one wife. Don Juanillo did not appreciate this interference in his private affairs. So he ventured into the interior, gathered a force of infidels, the Spanish sources uh, tell us, and he returned and he ordered the friar decapitated. And then he put the severed head, he put the head on a, a pike and placed that at Tolomato's boat launch as a warning. Don't interfere in local affairs in Tolomato. The war party then moved on to other Wale communities, and five more friars were attacked. Two of the friars to be executed asked to celebrate mass first. And the executioners sat around on the floor while he celebrated mass. And then when he finished, they killed him. Governor Cancio was concerned that the unrest could spread. Although he lacked any hard evidence about who led the massacre, he blamed the incident on Juanillo's decision to take a second wife. He also blamed the friars who were killed. It's a convenient story for him. So as he writes the letter, he concludes by saying, the friars deserved it. They were interfering in political matters, in matters over which they had no jurisdiction. In fact, a new theory actually points to a different perpetrator. Witnesses claimed it wasn't Juanillo who led the war party. It was another Wale chief named Don Domingo, who then convinced the governor that Juanillo was to blame. Cancio asked him to bring Juanillo into face trial, but instead, Don Domingo served up his own brand of justice. When the battle ends. There on the ground deceased were Don Juanillo, the paramount chief Don Francisco, and every single male member of the ruling family of Tolomato, gone. Tolomato was wiped off the map. The death of the chief and all his heirs left Don Domingo the new successor. Some historians now believe that the uprising was nothing more than a takeover, and that little John was framed. That essentially the friars, when the hostilities began, kind of got in the way. But several still believe the friars were killed for standing by their beliefs. And the Vatican is now considering sainthood for the five martyrs of Georgia. These were apparently men of great Christian courage and peacefully went about the celebration of the highest form of religious worship they knew, the Mass, and then submitted themselves to the sword. And they were ready to give up their lives, if necessary, and did so without fighting back. A living martyrdom was the fate of Friar Francisco de Avila. He had already been apprised of the death of Father Corpa when rebel Indians appeared one night outside the hut that served for his friary. 
the Indians tried to entice the priest out of the doors, saying that they had a communication from his superior. When Avila refused to answer, the Indians broke in. Avila hid behind a door then, while the savages rummaged through his few possessions, fled outside to the cover of nearby rushes. The night was illuminated by a brilliant moon, however, and the priest was eventually sighted by the Indians, who wounded his shoulder, hand, and thigh with a volley of arrows. The priest was then forced to walk to the village of Tulafina, a good distance away, where he was tortured and condemned to die. Finally, it was decided to spare his life in return for his services as a slave. The priest then entered upon a horrible captivity lasting nine months. In great pain from his wounds, he became the servant of everyone in the village, even of the children. He suffered from the cold and from constant hunger. All he had for food was what he could find himself among the wild produce of the Georgia coast. He had only scraps of cloth for clothes. The Indians attempted to make him enter a marriage contract and do other acts in violation of his vows or of his religion. Finally, in June 1598, he was liberated by a Spanish military patrol and taken to St. Augustine, where food and medicines restored his health. Father Avila was the only survivor among the friars who knew anything about the causes behind the Wale revolt. When Governor Conzo therefore asked him to testify on the matter, Avila refused and evoked the immunity granted to clerics. He argued that he could offer no evidence without incriminating the Indians and thereby leading to their execution, and that church law forbade him to do so. Conzo acknowledged his immunity and left him in peace. Years later, Father Avila went to Havana, where, under Franciscan obedience, he wrote the account of his capture and captivity that we relate here. The deaths of these Wali martyrs brought to 17 the number of priests and lay brothers who had given their lives to the cause of their faith in Florida. Now King Philip III, when he learned of the tragedy, seriously contemplated the abandonment of Florida. The loss of men and money that Spain had suffered over many years in her effort to colonize this province had become unbearable. The king demanded an investigation. He sent Fernando de Valdez, son of the governor of Cuba, to St. Augustine in order to determine how much, if anything, could be salvaged from the Wale Indian debacle. Valdez, to his surprise, found the Franciscans optimistic about the future of the missions and unanimous in their opposition to any plan for withdrawal. In formal dispositions, three of the friars described the success that the missions were enjoying among the more docile Tanukans. Friar Pedro Bermejo, an eight-year veteran stationed at Nombre de Dios, reported that he had three Indian pueblos or towns with 200 Christian adults and children. The chapel at Nombre de Dios was a handsome stone structure complete with statues of the saints and the Indians, were by this time so well instructed they sang high mass and vespers on Sundays. Friar Francesco Pareja had 500 Christians in nine pueblos within his mission area at San Juan de Puerto, near the mouth of the St. John's River. And Friar Baltazar Lopez had seven pueblos at San Pedro, farther north, in which he numbered 384 baptized converts and many others under instruction. Lopez also noted that there were 1,200 Christian Indians in Wale who could easily be won back once the chiefs settled down. But Governor Conzo 
all three priests agreed, would have to show a higher degree of cooperation with the missionaries than he had shown in the past if the mission program was to succeed as it ought. In 1603, Conzo made a personal visitation to the province of Wale to reassert Spain's dominion over it. He visited all the principal villages along the coast as far north as Santa Elena and succeeded in establishing peaceful relations with all the tribes. Later the same year, Conzo's successor, Pedro de Ibarra, conducted another inspection of Wale, during which he founded new doctrinas at St. Simon Island, St. Catherine's Island, and Sapelo Island. Ibarra promised to send more missionaries to the chiefs who were asking for them again. By the end of 1603, the rebirth of the Wale missions were well underway. The eventful course of the Franciscan mission system should not cause us to lose sight of the true pioneer clergy of Florida, the secular or diocesan priest. Although not primarily commissioned to work among the Indians, the diocesan priest did considerable work of this nature. And at Nombre de Dios, they had been the sole missionaries to the Timucuans during the three years between the time of the Spanish landing in 1565 and the arrival of the Jesuits under Father Segura in 1568. The primary responsibility of the seculars was to care for the Spanish settlers. This was a full-time task since the priests were never many in number and the outposts erected by Menendez along the Atlantic and Gulf seaboards were situated at great distances from each other requiring the priests to undertake frequent and arduous journeys. The poverty experienced by these outposts often equaled the worst conditions found by the Jesuits and Franciscans among the natives. At St. Augustine and San Mateo, over a hundred died the first winter. Almost naked, the survivors suffered greatly from the cold. At the post of Santa Lucia, further north in the Ace Country, conditions were so desperate in the winter of 1566 that the garrison was, was reduced to chewing shoes, leather belts, snakes, rats, and dwarf palmettos to stay alive. When Indians attacked the post in force, killing 23 of the soldiers in a fierce contest between archbuses and arrows, Father Lopez de Menendez Grajales, who happened to be on the scene at the time, slipped out with a sub-lieutenant and several men and endeavored to reach Havana and help. None of the crew knew navigation, however, and the small boat in which they sailed was driven back to shore by foul weather. A relief ship finally arrived to bring food and replacements. St. Augustine was more or less continually served by secular priests during the early years. Records are scant, but we know that in 1584 there were two seculars in the garrison town and that they drew the same rations and pay as that of the common soldier. One of these priests was Rodrigo Garcia de Trujillo, who had come over with Menendez in 1565. He was the pastor at St. Augustine in the summer of 1586 when the town was plundered and burnt to the ground by the English corsair, Sir Francis Drake. Though absent at intervals, Father Trujillo apparently served 28 years in the old settlement until 1593 when, broken in health, he had to retire. He was replaced for a brief time by Father Diego Escobar de Sambrana, whose name is the first to appear on the still extant parish registers. The first entry records of the baptism of Maria, legitimate daughter of Senora Ziemes de la Cueva, and Maria Melendez, his wife, on June 25, 1594. 
In July of that year, Father Sambrana left the parish and was replaced by Father Marone, superior of the Florida Franciscans. Marone served at this capacity until 1597, when he was replaced by an Irish-born secular. Father Ricardo Artur, Richard Arthur, was the first pastor at St. Augustine of whom we have any substantial record. He was also the first Irish priest to serve in what is now the United States. Although details of his early life are lacking, he probably had served as a layman with the Irish Brigade and Legion, formed by Sir William Stanley to help the Dutch in their revolt against Spain in 1586. This so-called Wild Geese Brigade later went over to the side of Spain. Father Artur arrived in St. Augustine by ship from Spain in June 1597 in company with the newly appointed Governor Conzo. Father Marone turned over the parish to Artur. We read in the records, quote, while preaching one Sunday in the principal church in this city. Underlying the different responsibilities of the regular and secular clergy, the records add that Marone could no longer serve as pastor because he was a Franciscan friar. Nine years later, the Franciscans would not be so obliging. On February 10, 1598, the Bishop of Santiago de Cuba, Don Antonio Diaz de Salcedo, confirmed Auteur's appointment as pastor of St. Augustine and also made the Irishman his vicar and ecclesiastical judge for the entire province of Florida. All persons, Franciscan friars as well as lay colonists, were instructed to obey him in all ecclesiastical matters and not to interfere with the performance of his office under pain of excommunication. The next year, Artur was appointed visitador as well. By this office, he was empowered to visit and inspect the friaries of the district. Relations which had never been very warm between regulars and seculars in the Indies no doubt cooled with this news that an Irish-born newcomer had been named to rule the veteran Spanish Franciscans. There is no descriptions of the parish church at St. Augustine at this time. The first church had been destroyed in Drake's raid in 1586. In the rebuilding, wood would have been used since it was not until the next century that the colonists learned to use the coquina shell rock, which abounded below the sands of nearby Anastasia Island. We know that on March 14, 1599, the Franciscan monastery burned down, as well as a number of houses, and that the friars had to move into a hospital completed by Governor Conzo the year before. This hospital, dedicated under the title Nuestra Señora de la Soledad, Our Lady of Solitude, is worthy of notice as the first hospital in what is now the United States. Except for the brief period of his occupancy by the burnt-out friars, 1599-1605, it would serve as a hospital for most of the next century and a half. When the friars moved into La Soledad, Governor Conzo erected another hospital at his own expense and dedicated it under the name Santa Barbara. By 1605, the friars had moved into new quarters and opened up a small seminary. Thus, St. Augustine gained the distinction of also having the first school in what is now the United States, antedating by more than a quarter century the educational foundations in English and Dutch colonies to the north. As a crown colony, Florida was not subject to its civil and judicial administration to the Tribunal of Santo Domingo, as other Spanish settlements in the general geographic area, but directly to the Spanish crown. 
Ecclesiastically, too, Florida was in great part controlled by the crown by virtue of the Patrino Real. Certain jurisdiction, however, was exercised by the Bishop of Santiago de Cuba, whose see was situated at Havana, and in 1606 it fell upon that prelate, Juan de las Cabezas de Altamarino, to make an official visitation of his distant charge. Many in Florida, including the governor, felt that such a visitation was long overdue. None of the converted Indians or second-generation Spaniards had yet received the sacrament of confirmation. Bishop Altamareno arrived at St. Augustine on March 15th on board a captured English pirate ship, and the colonists turned out in force to greet him, the first consecrated bishop to visit Florida. For the drab Presidio town, it was an event of the first magnitude, and the palipli and pomp must have startled the Spaniards as much as it did the Indians. The week following the bishop's arrival was Holy Week. On Holy Thursday, Altamirano consecrated the holy oils and chrism. On Holy Saturday, he ordained more than 20 young men, some from Cuba, the rest from Florida families. It is not recorded if these were major or minor orders. On Easter Sunday, he conferred confirmation on 350 adults and minors at St. Augustine's Parish Church. And on the Sunday following, he began his visitation of the missions, going first to nearby Nombre de Dios, where he confirmed 216 Indians and 20 Spaniards, soldiers, fishermen, hunters, who lived in that settlement. Then came the Guale missions in Georgian territory to the north, where he confirmed 1,652 Indians and remonstrated against their nearby nudity. And the Timucuan missions, which by this date went westward to San Diego Salamoto on the St. John's near Tacoy and as far as San Francisco de Portano, near present-day Gainesville. Altogether, the territory now Floridian, the bishop confirmed 981 persons, Indian and Spanish. On his return to St. Augustine, the bishop spent a good part of his time ironing out jurisdictional problems that had arisen in the relations of the friars with the governor. He concluded from his investigation that one reason for the strained relations was the youth and independent spirit of some of the friars. Quote, the labors and hardships of the fathers in their missions, the bishop wrote to Philip III, are indeed very great, and is much to their credit to have produced the fruits that I have seen in several of the charges here. Beyond a doubt, they eat their bread and sorrow in these places. However, he went on, the religious best adapted to these provinces are those who have reached the age of 40 and are humbler rather than learned. Those who have been brought up on Spanish goodness and piety, trained in the austerities of their institutes, and have, to use the expression common in the order, trampled worldly wealth underfoot. Altamirero also took note of the ambition of certain Franciscans to gain control of the parish church at St. Augustine and the chaplaincy of the fort. The Franciscans based their petition on the fact that they had actually filled those posts when, from time to time, a secular priest was not available. The bishop's comments to the king on this matter were interesting because they point up the independence of the friar, who, unlike his diocesan counterpart, was exempt from direct obedience to the bishop. Quote, I can only tell your majesty that my predecessor, although he belonged to that Franciscan order, did not wish a religious to be parish priest or chaplain here because of certain difficulties. 
not the least of which was that they, Franciscans, worked when they wished to work and took off when they did not. Neither the bishop nor the governor could call them to duty, for on such occasions they pleaded, as it suited them, their privilege of exemption. For my part, because of what I have seen, I declare that I would not venture to entrust this parish to them unless your majesty positively commands me to do so. The parish remained in diocesan hands, and the Franciscans concentrated again on the missions. Priest, friar, Indian, Creole, soldier, and official took heart from the Episcopal visitation. A vast and relatively disjoined stretch of primitive territory inhabited by Aborigines had been consolidated under the touch of the highest authority the church could offer. Bishop Altamirero went home to Cuba, and Florida readied itself for the Golden Age. The Golden Age of the Florida Missions, 1606-1675 The story of the rapid growth of the missions that followed Bishop Altamirero's visit and reached its zenith three-quarters through the 17th century is also the story of a long succession of hardships, obstacles, and worries. The hardships came from the nature of the work and from the forbidding circumstances in which it was often carried on. The obstacles were raised by Spaniards, usually governors or governor's officials, who compromised the spiritual labor of the friars and exploited the converted Indians for purposes not religious. A particularly egregious example of this predatory policy would arise in the 1650s during the administration of Governor Diego de Rabalido. The worries were occasioned by the constant threat that Spain would withdraw from Florida for economic reasons, leaving the mass of Indians to their savagery. This threat came very close to reality in 1607. The incident deserves the attention of our narrative, for it discloses that the Golden Age almost did not happen. In 1607, King Philip III had reached the conclusion that the Presidio of St. Augustine was serving the defense of the West Indies only indirectly and at a disproportionate cost. He knew that no mines or no sources of wealth had been discovered in the area and that the bar that blocked its shadow harbor allowed entrance only to the smallest ships. Also, that when the town was not being inundated by the sea, it was, as one of the Franciscans put it, impossible to walk a quarter of a league without coming in contact with swamps or sloughs, with the result that we are marooned. That the land was poor for agriculture and out of the path of commerce. That without an annual subvention of food and other necessities from Mexico or the Caribbean, the colony could not survive. And that a determined foreign corsair, such as Drake in 1586, could easily overwhelm the present fort whenever he wished. With the support of his advisors, Philip recommended to Governor Ibarra that he abandon St. Augustine except for a corporal's guard of 150 men, dismantle the mission system, and arrange to transport any baptized Indians who wished to leave for Espanola. Ibarra vigorously objected to this plan, arguing that Spain's continued presence in strength on the peninsula was necessary to the maintenance of the Spanish suzerainty over the continent. But it was probably the protest of two Florida Franciscans that carried the day, Fathers Francisco Pareja and Alonso de Paranada, appointed to the long years that their order had labored to Christianize the Indians, suffering all manner of torments and even martyrdom, 
was all this to be set aside lightly. The 6,000 Christian Indians would never consent to leave their native habitat, and to abandon them would be unthinkable. Therefore, they declared, directing our eyes towards God, our Master, from whom we hope to receive perfect protection, we beg your Majesty, who is a most Christian king, that you protect the Presidio and permit it to be strengthened. Besides, more religious should be sent to answer the needs of the field. To these arguments, the king reluctantly consented. The Florida missions were saved. In 1612, the Franciscan system in Florida and Cuba was raised to the dignity of a province under the title Santa Alana de la Florida, St. Helen of Florida. Eight friaries or convents were included in the new province, over which Friar Juan Batista de Capilla was named superior. In the same year, the additional Florida missionaries that the Franciscans had asked for arrived, 23 in number. The next year, eight came, and in 1615, 12 more. By 1615, 20 convents in the principal villages of Wale and Temuqua could be counted. By this date, the missionaries had ventured into the heart of Temuqua and as far west as Appalachia. Temuquan country occupied the northeast corner of the peninsula from the Atlantic west to the province of Potano, near the Gainesville of today, thence northwest to the Aquila River, dividing today's Taylor and Jefferson counties. In the northwest corner lay the populous province of Appalachia, which occupied all the fertile rolling land between the Aquila and Achlaconi rivers and had the heaviest concentration of Indian population around the present-day site of Tallahassee. Here the Franciscans were eventually to enjoy their greatest success. To the south, on the Gulf Coast from Tampa Bay to the Keys, were situated the Calusa Indians, and on the southeast coast lived very small independent tribes who were connected by race and language, and sometimes by politics, with the Calusas. To neither of these southern groups were the Franciscans to make serious overtures, and neither figures prominently in our story. It was the Temuqua and Appalachia that the friars concentrated their effort. One priest in particular deserves credit for opening up the northwestern reaches of Florida's interior. His name was Father Martin Prieto. In 1607, he made a number of exploratory trips into the lands of Temuqua, west of St. Augustine, and succeeded in bringing back one of the Chachiques for Christian instruction. The following year, after a Chachique had been baptized at St. Augustine along with 50 followers, Father Prieto and the Chachique traveled through all the villages of Temuqua and then passed across the Achila River to establish relations with the Appalachian Indians, who went about, said the priest, as naked as on the day they were born. Prieto wrote of the Appalachians, 70 caciques came together with all their people. They had abundant food consisting of cakes made of maize and flour of the same, and thus they awaited me. Having arrived at the plaza of Huantachuco, I testify I saw more than 30,000 Indians, and I am not surprised that being the first time they ever saw a Spaniard in their land in these times. After 1608, the Franciscans kept in regular contact with these distant tribes. 
Not until 1612, 1615, however, when the Franciscan forces were augmented to a total of 38 missionaries, were they in a position to spread out toward the new lands. In 1614, at the beginning of the Franciscan pushed westward, Florida was visited by Friar Luis Geronimo de Ore, Franciscan, a native of Peru, who had been appointed Commissionary General of the Indies and assigned the task of recruiting missionaries for Florida. Ore was a distinguished scholar and linguist, and shortly before coming to Florida, he had read Garcilasco de la Vegas, La Florida del Inca, an account of the De Soto expedition written from interviews with the survivors. The Commissionary General made an extensive investigation of the missions and of the methods that the friars were using to develop them. Satisfied with good progress was being made there, he returned to govern the Franciscan province of Concepcion in Spain. In 1616, he visited Florida again as Visitor General to hold a provincial chapter and to make a new study of the doctrinas in the Indian territories. Together with his secretary, Father Ore traversed the entire mission system by foot and by canoe. He covered the St. John's River missions and the missions in Petona, as far west as the Suwani River. From there, he headed northeast to the Wale Indian missions on the Georgia coast. In each place, he personally examined the Indians as to their knowledge of Christian doctrine and found them to compare favorably with the Spaniards. He also found that many of the natives had learned the art of writing. Ore later published his findings in a book, Martyrs of Florida, toward the end of which he singled out for special praise Friar Francesco Paraja, one of the religious who has been most useful in the conversion of the Indians. Father Pereja, a native of a known in Spain, had come to Florida with the first large contingent of Franciscans in 1595. What especially impressed the visitor general was the fact that Pereja had compiled a Timucuan dictionary and grammar and had composed in that language several books of a catechetical and devotional nature. These books, Father Ore found, were always in the Indians' hands. With ease, Ore reported, many Indian men and women have learned to read in less than two months, and they write letters to one another in their own language. Ore asked Pareja to give an account of the religious state of the Florida Indians at this stage in their development, and was so impressed by what he heard that he published the friar's account in his book. The account gives an illuminating picture of mission life. Here's a little account from the book, The Martyrs of Florida, by uh, Luis Geronimo de Ore. Certain questions are put in writing to all the religious. The questions put to them were, Is there any progress among the Indians? Do they live as Christians? Do they confess as such? Are there any reasons why communion is forbidden them? He answers in the following words. Friar Luis Geronimo de Ore commissionary of the province, and other fathers of this province being gathered, commanded us under holy obedience and ordered us at the same time to place our hand on our breast and to swear in verbo sacerdotis to tell what we know concerning certain questions which is paternally asked, signed with his name. In fulfillment of this, I, Francesco Pereja, definitor of this province, said the following. 
To the third question, namely, whether any improvement is apparent among the converted Indians and whether they show themselves to be true Christians, I answer that it is for more than 14 years that the more advanced are going forward in the things of the faith. That Holy Communion has been given them, which they receive with great devotion. When I was the Concidio, I examined some of these together with some of the interior. I had been asked by the fathers to do so in order to ascertain if communion could be given to them. Among them, there are Indian men who have sufficient knowledge to give instructions, while there are Indian women who catechize other Indian women, preparing them for the reception of Christianity. They assist at masses of obligation on Sundays and feast days in which they take part and sing. In some districts, they have their confraternities and the procession of Holy Thursday, and from the mission stations they come to the principal mission to hear the Salve, which is sung on Saturdays. They stay there to sleep over Saturday night in order to hear Mass on Sundays. In all the towns, they have their churches, and they emulate one another in building better ones. They take holy water and recite their prayers in the morning and evening. They come together in the community house to teach one another singing and reading. Whenever a religious goes out of his convent to a rather distant place, as, for example, to the Presidio on some necessary business, or if he goes there to be cured of some indisposition from which he is suffering, many Indian men and women ask him to hear their confessions, saying, Perhaps I shall die before your reverence returns. When someone is ill, they immediately send one of the runners of the town for the priest in order that he might hear the person's confession and administer extreme unction. Although some die in the mission stations, in their testament, which they make orally, they order that for their burial, they be carried to where the fathers say mass every day. This is the principal place over three or four towns, which every religious has of substations. Others, when they are ill, have themselves brought in canoes to where the priest is in order to confess, and after they have done this, they return to their houses or huts. They show reverence for the dead, for not only in the general commemoration of the dead do they bring them an offering, such as pumpkins or beans or a basket of maize or a hamper of toasted flour, but they also, during the year, they have mass set for them with some offering of the aforementioned articles which they offer as an alms. On Monday, at the procession of the departed souls, they come to be present at it and to hear Mass. These are the signs I have seen together with others which I omit, in order not to be too long. I shall add that they have left all their rites and ceremonies and abuses to which they were prone. Do they confess as Christians? I answer yes, if they are sufficiently instructed. As a person who has visited this custody, I have looked carefully into this matter to see that they had that sufficient to receive Holy Communion, and I have found no reason why they should be denied the sacrament. Many persons are found, men and women, who confess and who receive Holy Communion with tears and who show up advantageously with many Spaniards. And I shall make bold to say and sustain my contention by what I have learned by experience that with regard to the mysteries of faith, many of them answer better than the Spaniards because the latter are careless in these matters. The religious never cease to instruct them and repeat to them the word of God daily. 
What pertains to faith and belief, God is the one who can judge. We can judge only by a person's exterior manifestations, who by the actions he performs, presumably, shows forth the workings of faith. As to the question whether there are any reasons why they should be denied Holy Communion, I reply that for many of them I find no reason, except the scruple of some of the religious. For among them I have never found a trace of idolatry or witchcraft or superstition. For instance, they never say, quote, By means of this you will be healed. If you do not cure yourself with this herb, you will die. Or, if the owl hoots, it is a sign that some disgrace must overtake me. Or, do not cook the fish in warm water if it was the first that entered the fishing grounds where no other fish enter. Or, do not eat maize of the cultivated land where lightning struck for you will be sick with such a sickness. When a woman gives birth, she does so apart, but she no longer places a laurel at the door of her house, saying that the devil should not strike her as she used to do. All these things and others has the word of God extirpated so much so that the Indians do not even remember them. Furthermore, the younger generation, which has been nourished on the milk of the gospel, makes fun of and laughs at some old men and women who carelessly have recourse to these abuses. There is no need of treating of drunkenness, for their drink does not cause it. Even many of the religious are not without it. It is made of some leaves of the oak tree. This is toasted dry in a pot or jar placed in water. Immediately they pour water upon it to a point where it is neither hot nor cold, nor do they mix any other thing with it. It is good for preventing stones and small accretions of the kidneys, as well as a preventative against pain in the side. For this reason, it has been taken to Spain and to New Spain. Another question was, Have churches and fonts for baptismal and holy water been erected? I say they esteem it to have a better church or temple than in other places. It has happened that pagans have come, as they do every day from towns to those of the Christians, and received the blessing of the religious. The latter asked the Indians, What are you looking for here? To which they answer, We came to see the church and your house and that of our relatives because they consider themselves related, provided they have the same names or lineage, even if there is a difference of a hundred degrees. After a lapse of time, they come and say, Father, we have a house for you and a church. Come and instruct us, for the Christians have already told us it is of prime importance for us to go and see the Utanama, who is in heaven above, besides the Chiquites there, who are most Orobisi, which means learned, tell us that they have become Christians. We also desire to become such and to be guided by that which they do and say, instructed by you. With regard to the question of furnishings, I say that despite their poverty, they are accustomed to bring some deer skins in order to buy wax for the burial of the dead, in other parts by means of some arobas of maize and machos. For so they call the pigs, they have gathered enough to purchase some small bells. For the rest, the religious are accustomed to do without some of their food and drink and clothing, which your majesty provides for the friars in order to adorn the altars. I testify that Friar Pedro Ruiz and I have made chalices of lead, which we have used at mass many times, that for weeks 
It was necessary for one to have the vestment and the other remain without saying mass until we provided ourselves with the necessaries of the sacred ministry by the sacrifice of our mills. The lead out of which the chalices were made and the stones for the altar were obtained by contributing to the common cause from the meager ration that was given us or from the alms which your majesty commands to be given us. Often it appears that they, the government officials, throw it to the dogs, since it seems to them that the soldiers are the necessary ones here, and that we are of no use. But we are the ones who bear the burden and heats, and we are the ones who are subduing and conquering the land. It has been proposed at times that your majesty, our king and lord, give an aroba and a half a wine for mass, and also be pleased to give two arobas a wax for the same purpose, for the period of a whole year because of the great penury that is experienced here. But since we have not the means to buy it, there has been no one to ask for it. This good religious relates other things in greater extent, and his account is very true. The other religious agree with the account of Father Preheya. He is the oldest of them, a man of great virtue, and is approved of the accounts given by other religious, so that I have contexted myself with giving his alone in order to avoid prolixity. In 1633, the Indians of Appalachia received their first full-time resident missionary. A doubtful Franciscan authority estimated at that time that there were some 34,000 Indians in that province alone, of whom now over 5,000 are baptized. Both figures were probably exaggerations. In 1635, writing to the king, Friar Francisco Alonso de Jesus, custodian of the province of Santa Elena de la Florida, wrote that Florida was in dire need of priests for the newly opened mission in the Northwest. Of 12 friars who had been sent out in 1630, he wrote, one died on the voyage from Spain, two others had to be left in Cuba to recuperate from illnesses contracted on the voyage, and five had died from the severe and continuous labors of their apostolate to the Indians in Florida. He went on to say, quote, The friars suffer greatly in this mission field. They must walk barefooted in this cold land when going about from mission to mission. The Indians are very widely scattered, about in 44 doctrinas. For this great number, there are only 35 religious. Many times it is necessary for a missionary to walk 8 or 10 leagues to hear a confession, all of which sufferings are augmented by the fact that the missionaries get very little aid in the form of assistance who might lighten some of their burdens. Some of the priests, being so overburdened with work and seeing so many Indians without hope of converting them, become discouraged and return to Spain. Those priests who remained about 43 in all kept at the job of conversion despite the seemingly hopeless odds. The more the Indians they brought into the faith, the more time they had to give to ministering to the faithful, and the less time correspondingly they had to devote to new conversions. Yet all the while, during the 1630s and 1640s, they were importuned by new tribes and villages which sought their ministrations. Sometimes pagan Indians would come to the doctrina, watch with awe what was going on, and then disappear. After several weeks, they would return and say to the missionary, Father, we have a house for you and a church. Come and instruct us, for the Christians have already told us it is of great importance for us to go and see the Utanama, the all-powerful one, 
who is in heaven above. Convert making was a slow and painstaking process. The records leave no doubt that the natives were not admitted to baptism until they had undergone a long and thorough preparation as catechumens or initiates. There was never a note of hurry in this regard, nor was there coercion of any kind. Even after baptism, the convert, now called a Cristiano, had to convince the missionary that he understood the basic theology behind penance and the Eucharist before he could receive those sacraments. The Christianos were made to understand, furthermore, that they had taken on new obligations of faith and morality, which must be rigorously observed under a day-by-day Christian discipline. The only veneer to be found in this conservative missionary program was the quasi-Spanish culture they sometimes characterized villages where the Christianos were also very Hispanicized. There the Indians had Christian names prefixed by dawn and recited the prayers of Catholic Europe. Although the number of missions and Indian converts increased with each passing decade, no similar progress marked the material lot of the missionaries and Indians. We learn some of the practical problems of the priest's life in the field during the 1640s from a memorial by the Franciscan provincial Friar Francisco Perez, writing at St. Augustine in July 1648, Father Perez said that there were then 43 Franciscans at work in Florida. They lived, he said, among much material poverty and spiritual frustration. Maize, or Indian corn, was the only crop harvested in the entire province, and often the land was too sterile even for maize. The poor soil conditions were largely the result of poor farming, and the missionaries expended a great deal of their time in trying to get the Indians to cultivate the fields properly. Not only had the Indians proved to be discouragingly lazy, but most of them, from poverty, lacked hoes and axes and other basic farming tools. Some of the Indians went about completely naked for lack of clothes. Commodities that New Spain was charged with sending to Florida each year had not arrived intact for 10 years. This assistance, which originated at Mexico City and was called the Situado, was largely eaten up by the expenses of first procuring it and then shipping it to St. Augustine. In transport, it was subject to shipwreck, piracy, and the dishonesty of officials. With the Situado arriving in depleted shape or not at all, the Indians were so hard-pressed by hunger, they often disappeared into the woods to hunt for acorns, palm berries, water grapes, and wild roots in order to keep their bodies and souls together. When this happened, the missionaries would have to follow them into the wilds and minister the sacraments to them under jungle conditions. In his account, Father Perez could only hint at the hardships suffered by these selfless men of God, the constant hunger, the long and exhausting treks over land, the ceaseless torments from mosquitoes, and the risk to life that came from frequent wars between tribes. It was a truly apostolic life, he wrote, completely devoid of all ambition for human glory. Adding to the missionaries' ordinary problems, some of the Appalachian Indians revolted against Spanish rule in 1647. At issue was the exploitation of the Indians for personal services by a military garrison stationed in the province. Although the missionaries opposed the military in this matter, three of their number were killed in the outbreak. 
Royal Treasurer Francisco Menendez Marquis, with a small force, easily quelled the uprising, executed 12 of the rebels, and sentenced 26 others to forced labor on the fortifications at St. Augustine. The severity of the sentences was a setback for the Franciscans, who argued unsuccessfully that their program in Appalachia was seriously compromised as a consequence. It was bad enough to have provoked an uprising, they said, but the punishments meted out only increased the Indians' grievance. The disenchantment of the Indians with the white man's justice continued to grow as civil officials began to inflict new indignities on the natives. In 1648, the Franciscans, taking the Indians' port, protested to King Philip IV that the governor, the royal officials, and the soldiers were exploiting the Indians and their impoverished condition by forcing them to cultivate their private gardens. Even the married men, the friars said, were being taken out of the doctrinas and worked so hard for such long periods that many of them were dying. Some were being kept under conditions of forced labor, away from their wives and children, for as long as a year. As a result of this plea by the priests, a royal order was issued from Spain directing the governor and the officials at the Presidio at St. Augustine to give scrupulous obedience to ordinances given earlier on just treatment of the natives. And so the problem was solved for a time. It would crop up again eight years later. In 1655, the Franciscans claimed 26,000 Christianized Indians in 38 doctrinas. Seventy friars, the highest number ever, were in the field. The Florida missions were riding the crest of the Golden Age. Then, in 1656, Indians in both Timucua and Apalachee raised a serious rebellion, and the mission program faltered. Governor Diego de Rebolido feigned surprise, but the Franciscans had known for some years that a crisis of this kind was coming. When the governor attempted to cast blame for the incident on the friars, arguing that they must have mistreated the Indians, the friars threw the charge back in Rebolida's face. The sole blame, they said, rested with him. The immediate cause of the uprising, as attested by the Indians themselves, was the governor's program of forced labor, under which Indians had been conscripted to carry corn and other supplies from the interior to the coastal presidio of San Augustine. Father Juan Gomez de Engraba, who had been in Florida 46 years, testified that the Indians were loaded down like mules or horses and required to walk as much as 100 leagues under the burden. Many of the Indians suspected that Rebolido planned to kill them when they reached St. Augustine. They remembered that under Rebolido's predecessor, Pedro Bandit Horutiner, the 200 Indians who walked to St. Augustine, only 10 returned to their homes. The rest had died of hunger on the way. Rebolido dispatched soldiers under Sergeant Major Adrian de Canizares to put down the revolt. This the governor's men did, but with such extreme cruelty that six priests who were in Appalachia at that time left the province in disgust and took ship at the Bay of Appalachia for Havana. Tragically, they were all drowned when a violent storm swallowed up their vessel during the crossing. Although they felt an understandable resentment toward the Spanish civil authorities who had enslaved them, the Indian rebels of 1656 did not carry the same feeling toward their San Franciscan fathers. They realized that these men of God, Spaniards though they were, 
had pleaded their case to the king and had stood up boldly to the local governor in defense of Indian rights. Relations between the Indians and the priests were even enhanced during this unhappy period by the fact that the Franciscans continued their ministrations without rebuke to the Indians and without any care for what the government of St. Augustine might think about their civil obedience. During the height of the hostilities, for example, one of the friars went by night to the mission Santa Elena de Machaba in Tumuqua, where the rebels were gathered so that they should not be without the sacraments. In the end, the Franciscan position was vindicated. Governor Rebolido was formally condemned by the Council of the Indies. Relying on such reports as those of Father Gomez, the Council decided that an example had to be made of Rebolido before Florida was lost to the crown and all the good work of Christian conversion brought to naught. In 1657, it was decided to send orders for the immediate arrest of the governor and for his detention in one of the Castillos of Havana until he could be transported to Spain for trial. Ironically, Rebolito died before these orders could be carried out. The Franciscans were now enabled to get on with the work of reducing the Indians to Christianity as they described the process of conversion. One of their first acts after Rebolido's death was to press for the return of all displaced Indians to their proper homes. Among the displaced were many Indians of the province of Timucua, whose pueblos had been moved by Rebolido from their original sites to new sites along the principal road that led from St. Augustine to Appalachia. Although the late governor's action seemed wise in theory, Experience showed that the change of sites had brought more bad results than good. Most of the transplanted Indians, once taken out of their natural environment, fled into the woods to live with their infidel cousins, where they might easily die in apostasy. The Franciscans urged that these Indians be allowed to return to their homes, as subsequently was done. Relations between the Franciscans and civil authorities continued strained during the next two decades, a particular nettle in the side of the friars was the military garrison that St. Augustine insisted on stationing in the center of the Appalachian Mission country. The soldiers and their arms were there not for any altruistic reasons, but to guard the fertile Appalachian lands that were then being farmed for corn and developed for cattle raising. The friars argued that their presence was unnecessary, as there was nothing in Appalachia that an enemy might want. Besides, the presence of the military offended the spirit of peace that the friars were trying to inculcate in their charges. Finally, and this was their principal objection, the soldiers gave bad example by their disrespectful language and conduct towards the friars. The soldiers went about saying that the friars were good for nothing but to say mass. One Franciscan complained to St. Augustine, When the Indians see that the soldiers show no consideration to the friars, they themselves lose respect for us. The religious then speak to deaf ears when they talk about sufferings and hard labor. The Indians flee off to the woods to return to their pagan ways. In St. Augustine, the secular clergy maintained their pastoral influence over the capital and by mid-century showed appreciable progress in their organization of the town's Catholic life. In 1646, there were three priests in the town, a pastor, assistant pastor, and a chaplain to the 300 soldiers of the garrison. The regular force of seculars never seems to have gone beyond four, although 
there is mention of five clerics in the town during 1655. Before 1666, the duties of sacristan was performed by a soldier. After that date, the priest sacristan was stationed in the principal church. The regulations governing the diocesan clergy in the Indies specified that the secular priests were to be supported by tithes on all produce of the land. However, since there was little in the way of Florida produce, the priest's rations depended largely on annual subventions from Mexico. Their salaries, which ranged from 200 to 283 ducats each, were paid by the crown from church tithes collected in Cuba. The same regulation stated that the regulars were not permitted to interfere where seculars were already established. In St. Augustine, there seems to have been little, if any, cooperation between the two. The seculars were obliged to teach the Spanish language to the Indians and to give them doctrinal instructions in that language. At a later date, however, jurisdiction over the Indians within St. Augustine passed to the Franciscans. The parish priests had work enough to keep them busy in the Presidio, 300 soldiers with their dependents, a few farmers and tradespeople, the civil list, the resident Indians, the Royal Hospital of La Soledad, another hospital for the treatment of the poor, confraternities of the Blessed Sacrament and of the Holy Souls, the hermitages of San Patricio and Santa Barbara. The parish continued to share the dreadful poverty of the town. In 1606, the Bishop of Santiago de Cuba had found a wooden church in fair condition, but so poor it could not boast a single candle. In 1623, the building was described as old and crumbling, and still without adornment. In 1635 and 1645, petitions to church authorities outside Florida for assistance in repairing the wretched condition of the church went unheeded. In 1668, the church was sacked during the nighttime raid by English pirates under Robert Searles, a sacrilege which caused the pastor Francesco Sotolongo to protest to the crown over what he considered the military incompetence of the governor. The parish was so poverty-stricken by 1673 that during a portion of that year, the sacristan priest complained that mass could not be celebrated for lack of hosts and wine. The enduring destitution of St. Augustine and Florida was one reason, along with the scant population of the province, why Florida was never erected to the dignity of a diocese during Spanish times, although the possibility had been raised by the Council of the Indies in 1655 and would be put forward again in the century that followed. In the meantime, St. Augustine and Florida were solely in need of an Episcopal visitation. On August 14, 1674, the Bishop of Santiago de Cuba, Gabriel Diaz Vara Calderon, wrote to Queen Mariana of Spain to acknowledge two royal chedulas of the previous year. In them, Queen Mariana, a member of the House of Austria and a religious person much interested in the spread of Christianity in the New World, had directed Bishop Calderon to make an Episcopal visitation of the provinces of Florida. Calderon had held the Cuban Sea since 1671, and within his jurisdiction was the nearby mainland of La Florida. In the beginning, he had attempted to govern the province through the pastor of St. Augustine, Father Sotolongo. This nettled the Franciscans, however, who did not like being subject to a secular priest, and now, after the insistent letters of the queen, there was nothing for it but to go to Florida himself. 
Calderon told the queen that he would leave for Florida at once to administer a confirmation, correct faults and abuses, investigate the work of Indian conversions, and lend encouragement to efforts of the friars to extend the mission network into the country of Apalachiola, which bordered Appalachia to the west. He added that he would take with him chalices and all the necessary vestments of the divine cult. Bishop Calderon arrived in St. Augustine on August 23, 1674. The next day, he ordained seven young priests, sons of the best families in St. Augustine, the first positively authenticated instance of ordinations to the priesthood to take place within what is now the United States. Shortly afterwards, he left on his visitation to the missions. Where he went and what he saw during the next 10 months was recorded in a remarkable letter written to Queen Mariana on his return to Cuba in 1675. The letter reported, as Calderon wrote in the opening sentence, quote, What has been discovered up to today concerning the entire district of Florida, both along the seacoast and inland? He went on to give a reasonably accurate description for his day of the entire southeastern United States, including a list of the principal Indian tribes, a brief geographical description of the entire coastline from Charleston around the Florida Peninsula to the Apalachola River, a description of the customs of the Christian Indians, and most valuable of all, a list of the missions of Tumaqua, Apalachi, Apalachoa, and Wale, with measurements of the distances that lay between them. The Calderon Report is an illuminating picture of the missions and probably the most valuable single document that remains to us from the Golden Age. The bishop began with the description of St. Augustine, which seemed to him almost uninhabitable, owing to the poverty, hunger, and unhealthy, even hazardous conditions that prevailed. The parish and its various works were adequately served, and the bishop produced no complaint about them. Then he wrote, Going out of the city, a half a league to the north, there is a small village of scarcely more than 30 Indian inhabitants, called Nombre de Dios, the mission of which is served from the convent, following the road from east to west within an extent of 98 leagues. A league is roughly two and a half miles. There are 24 settlements and missions of Christian Indians, 11 belonging to the province of Tumaqua and 13 of that of Appalachia. The bishop then enumerated the missions situated along the mission trail that began at Nombre de Dios, and traversed the peninsula as far as present-day Tallahassee, giving the distances in leagues between them. His is the best list that remains to us, and it enables geographers and archaeologists to determine with reasonable accuracy the general areas in which the Franciscan settlement stood. Setting out across the interior, Calderon arrived after traveling 10 leagues at the mission and village of San Diego de Samatoto on the St. John's River near present-day Tekoi. The bishop noted that the mission was at a spot where the St. John's was almost a league and a half in width and very turbulent. From that point, it was 20 uninhabited leagues to the principal mission of Tumaqua, Santa Fe de Toloca, which stood about eight miles north of present-day Gainesville. Nearby was the deserted mission and village of San Francisco de Petona, 
then followed in order along the trail westward the missions of Santa Catalina near the Santa Fe River in Columbia County, Santa Cruz de Ahoica near the junction of the Santa Fe and Suwani Rivers, Santa Cruz de Tarijica two leagues farther along the road, San Juan Guacara on the Suwani near where Lauraville now is, San Pedro de Potohiriba on Sampala Lake in Madison County, Santa Elena de Machaba near today's Madison, San Mateo in Madison County, and San Miguel de Azul near the Achula River in Madison County. The Achula River formed the northern boundary of the province of Timucua. Now the bishop crossed into the country of the Appalachian. There he found the missions of San Lorenzo de Kibichuco, La Concepcion de Arbale, San Francisco de Ocono, San Juan de Aspalaga, and San Josef de Acuya, all in Jefferson County. And the following missions in the area that is now Leon County, San Pedro de Patala, San Antonio de Bacuqua, San Damien de Cubajica, also called Escambi, San Luis de Talamali, which is the youngest of all, La Purification de Tama, called Yamasas, San Martin de Tomuli, Santa Cruz de Cupuli, also called Kuntafu, and Asuncion de Puerto. Of these Appalachian missions, Calderon writes to La Purificación and Asuncion, he himself founded as missions on January 27th and February 2nd, 1675, respectfully, gathering in Asuncion the three heathen nations, the Chines, Pacaras, and Amacanos, who are gradually being instructed and baptized. The bishop's account also reveals that, quote, in the mission of St. Louis, which is the principal one of the province, resides a military officer in a country house defended by pieces of ordnance and a garrison of infantry. The presence of this garrison in the heart of the missions was resented by the Franciscans, who had often petitioned for its removal. Several times earlier, the soldiers had been withdrawn only to be sent back again each time. Going still further to the west, Calderon entered the province of Apalachula, where he dedicated a church in an Indian village named La Encarnacion a la Santa Cruz de Sabacula, wherein have gathered the great Chaquique of that province with his vassals from Sabacola el Grande, which I have converted to our holy faith. To the north, two missions, San Nicolas and San Carlos, were inhabited by Indians of the Chacatos nation, which 14 years ago requested baptism and did not have their desire fulfilled until June 21st of last year, 1674. After mentioning some of the other great tribes who lived beyond the reach of the missions, Calderon then listed the Franciscan undertakings in Wale, north of St. Augustine, in that province, the better part of which lay along the eastern shore of present-day Georgia. The bishop found the following missions, La Natividad de Nuestra Señora de Tolomato, two leagues north of St. Augustine, San Juan del Puerto, on Fort George Island, at the mouth of the St. John's River, Santa Maria, on Amelia Island, San Felipe, on Cumberland Island, Santa Benaventura de Guadalquini 
on Jekyll Island, Santo Domingo de Asajo on St. Simon Island, San Jose de Zapala on Sapelo Island, and Santa Catalina on St. Catherine's Island. All are settlements of Christian Indians, the bishop wrote. And in the last named, your majesty has an official office. And in the last named, your majesty has an officer with a good garrison of infantry. He noted that 24 leagues to the north of Santa Catalina was Port St. George, Charleston, South Carolina, now an English settlement in the great hinterland that lay between Port St. George and the Spanish mission centers in Appalachia, Calderon heard, quote, There dwells in encampments without fixed dwellings the numerous nation of the Chicomecos, heathen, so savage and cruel that their only concern is to assault villages, Christian and heathen, taking lives and sparing neither sex, age, nor state of life, roasting and eating the victims. Whether this actually was the accustomed behavior of the tribes in the interior, such as least was the opinion held of them by the Indians along the coast. As for the Florida Peninsula south of St. Augustine, Calderon noted that there were as yet no missions at all among the tribes of the Calusia Nation. Next to his enumeration of the Spanish mission sites, the most interesting feature of Calderon's report was his description of the Christian Indians themselves. Quote, In the four provinces of Wale, Timacua, Appalachian and Appalachicholi, there are 13,152 Christian Indians to whom I administered the Holy Sacrament of Confirmation. They are fleshy and rarely is there a small one, but they are weak and phlegmatic as regards work, though clever and quick to learn any art they see done, and great carpenters, as is evidenced in the construction of the wooden churches which are large and painstakingly wrought. The Indians' weapons were the bow and arrow and the hatchet called makana. The men went half-naked with the skin of some animal worn from the waist down. Sometimes they wore a coat of serge without a lining or a blanket. Most of the women wore a sort of tunic made from guano, the so-called Spanish moss. 4,081 women, Calderon wrote, whom I found in the villages naked from the waist up and from the knees down, I caused to be clothed in this moss like the others. The ordinary diet of the Indians consisted of corn with ashes, lye, homely, pumpkins, beans, and such game and fish as they could catch. The usual beverage was water, and they never touched rum or wine. Their greatest luxury is a drink called casina, which they make from a reed that grows on the seacoast, which they cook and drink hot. It becomes very bitter and is worse than beer, although it does not intoxicate them and is beneficial. The Indians slept on the ground in warm weather. In winter, they slept inside their houses on frames of reed bars covered with bear skins. Fires set in the center of their houses made blankets unnecessary. The Indian house was called a bujio. It is a hut made in round form of straw without a window and with a door a yard high and a half a yard wide. On one side is a granary supported by 12 beams, which they called agarita, where they store the wheat, corn, and other things they harvest. In the center of each village was a great bujio, or council house, constructed of wood and covered with straw. It was round and had a very large opening at the top. Most council houses, the bishop reported, could accommodate from 2,000 to 3,000 persons. 
The interior sides were furnished with niches, which served as seats for the chiefs and as lodgings for warriors and transients. Dances and festivals were held in them around a fire that blazed in the center beneath the roof opening, and the missionary priest was always present to prevent indecent conduct. A fascinating account of the Indians' practice of Christianity closed the bishop's report. As to their religion, they are not idolaters, and they embrace with devotion the mysteries of our holy faith. They attend Mass with regularity at 11 o'clock on the holy days they observe, namely Sunday and the Feast of Christmas, the Circumcision, Epiphany, the Purification of Our Lady, and the Feast Days of Saints Peter, St. Paul, and All Saints Day. And before entering the church, each one brings to the house of the priest a log of wood as a contribution. They do not talk in the church, and the women are separated from the men, the women on the epistle side of the altar, the men on the gospel side. They are very devoted to the Virgin, and on Saturdays they attend church when her Mass is sung. On Sundays they attend the Rosary and the Salve in the afternoon. They celebrate with rejoicing and devotion the birth of our Lord, all attending the Midnight Mass with offerings of loaves, eggs, and other food. They subject themselves to extraordinary penances during Holy Week, and during the 24 hours of Holy Thursday and Friday, they attend standing, praying the rosary in complete silence, 24 men, 24 women, and 24 children with hourly changes. The children, both male and female, go to church on workdays and to a religious school where they are taught by a teacher whom they call the Athiqui, interpreter of the church, a person whom the priests have for this service, as they also have someone deputized to report to them on all parishioners who live in evil. Thus ended the bishop's letter to Queen Mariana. His visitation had lasted 10 months. He had inspected every mission in the far-flung province, confirmed 13,152 Spaniards and Indians, corrected abuses and suppressed irregularities, begun or restored six doctrinas, and expanded the equivalent of $11,000 for the elimination of the living conditions of the Indians. He returned to Cuba in late June 1675 and died there a year later, some say from the hardships endured on his visitation. The year 1675 marked the finest hour of the missionary movement in Florida, the highest point as events would determine to which the aspirations of the Franciscans led. Greater numbers of missionaries had labored in the missions before that date, but never before had their results been so consoling and impressive. Given the trying circumstances under which they labored, it was an amazing accomplishment. In building the mission network described by Calderon, they had had to win over the friendship and confidence of savage tribes, withstand a sometimes hostile or indifferent civil government, and survive the torments, physical and psychological, that came from living among aborigines, in the woods and thickets, and maize patches of a primeval land. The rude, wattle and daub buildings of their mission compounds were a far cry from the Baroque monasteries of old Spain. Yet from living stones, they had built a story that will linger long after the monasteries may have passed. It is a story that loses none of its luster from the fact that it came to an unbelievably tragic end. One year after Bishop Altamirano's Episcopal visitation of Florida in 1606, English settlers began a foundation on the James River in Virginia. By the time of the second visitation, Bishop Calderon's in 1674, 
Englishmen were settled as far south as Charleston during the last quarter of the 17th century, the dimensions of La Florida would contract still farther, and English hegemony over the Atlantic coast would reach as far as the present border between Florida and Georgia. Lands associated for nearly a century and a half with the Spanish missions suddenly found themselves overrun by Indians under the captaincy of English Carolinians. Drawn on by a profitable trade in skins, the English moved out from Charleston into the Yamasee and Creek country of central and western Georgia, where, with their cheaper and more abundant supply of manufactured goods and firearms, which Spaniards had never provided the Indians, they easily won the trade and friendship of the interior tribes. With the tribes in tow, they then moved east to the coast and south towards the Gulf. Within a few years, the Wale country was lost to Spain and all the missions destroyed. The bright prospects that Bishop Calderon had seen for the conversion of the Apalachoa Indians vanished under the persuasion of the Carolina traders. And although it would have seemed incredible in 1675, the prosperous missions of Tamaqua and Appalachia lay in ruins and awash in the blood of slaughter. What made the tragedy all the worse was that the fervor and disinterestness of many of the missionaries fell apart before the missions did. The number of missionaries in Florida increased following Bishop Calderon's visitation from 40 in 1676 to 52 in 1680. On the surface, everything seemed to be going well. A synod of the Diocese of Santiago de Cuba was held in 1684 that served to strengthen discipline among both Spanish and Indian Christians. A special section was devoted to Florida, which ended with an admonition to the missionaries to watch with all attention and vigilance for the relief and good treatment of the Indians, and not to consent that any person, ecclesiastical or lay, should maltreat them in word or deed. One of the strictors written into the section on Florida declared that the Indians shall not play ball, and regulation that would be curious to us today did it not refer to a game that was more mayhem than sport. In response to a formal challenge issued by one village to another, 40 or 50 Indians on a side would wrestle over a deerskin ball with the aim of kicking it into a hollowed top of a goal post. Whichever side performed this feat 11 times won the match. The scrimmaging was so rough, as one of the missionaries described the affair, that when the pile is broken up, four or five are stretched lifeless. Others have their eyes gouged out and many arms and legs and ribs are broken. Buckets of water are poured on the survivors, while substitutes replace the disabled, and the game starts all over in the hot sun, and so it goes on till sunset. It is little wonder that the church banned the game of ball. In 1679, the pastor at St. Augustine, Sebastian Perez de la Carta, informed the governor that he and a group of secular priests stationed in Cuba desired to go as missionaries to the Calusa Indians who inhabited the lower Gulf side of the Florida Peninsula. The year before, a Franciscan mission to the Calusa country had come to a speedy and comical conclusion. The friars entered one of the villages at night in solemn procession, hoping, no doubt, to conquer Jericho with one elegant display. 
But the Indians fled into the woods terrified. When the friars repeated the performance the next evening, the Indians came at them with their hatchets. The noisy visitors were stripped of their brown robes, but they got out with their lives. A royal cadula for the secular mission was issued in October 1680. It directed the governor of Cuba to appropriate 300 gold ducats for each priest's transportation expenses. The first secular in Cuba to offer himself for the work was Dr. Don Juan de Chersneros, senior canon of the Cathedral Church of Santiago de Cuba, a man of letters and of high virtuous repute. Seven other seculars stepped forward to join him. The necessary funds, however, were not forthcoming as ordered, and the project languished. It was revived in 1687, but there is no record that any seculars came to the Calusas as a result. In 1688, Florida was visited by a young secular, Father Juan Ferro Machado, emissary of the Bishop of Cuba. Machado's visit proved a great success, especially in correcting some abuses that had crept into Florida's ecclesiastical life. He seems not to have gotten along very well with the Franciscans, however, who disputed his right to inspect them, and one of their number, Friar Francesco Ayeta, wrote a polemic charging that Florida was not even a part of the Cuban diocese. For his part, Machado criticized the friars for not having unified all the Indian tribes under one language, as had been done in Peru, despite the fact that conditions in Florida and Peru were not at all comparable. Finally, Machado recommended that Florida be erected into a separate diocese. The proposal for a separate diocese had been made before by two of Florida's governors, Robolado in 1655 and Juan Marquis Cabrera in 1683. Only two of the 23 bishops of Cuba since the foundation of St. Augustine had visited the peninsula. Pleading the great distance or the danger from pirates, which was very real, the feeling in Havana was that Florida ought to be cut off from the cares and the funds of Cuba and be allowed to shift for itself ecclesiastically. It was never to be. But from this day forward, the idea became increasingly popular. In 1693, an expedition led by Don Andreas de Pes landed at Pensacola Bay, site of the ill-fated Tristan de Luna colony of 1559-1561. With Pes was Father Carlos de Seguenza y Gangora a well-known professor of mathematics in the University of Mexico. The priest chanted the Te Deum and then surveyed the shore for a suitable site for a settlement. When he was satisfied that he had chosen a good location, the Spaniards marched to it in procession, chanting the Litany of Loreto. A cross was set up and Father Seguenza offered Mass. It was St. Mark's Day, April 25th. Thus began again the story of Pensacola, although a permanent settlement was not established until five years later. As the second large Spanish settlement in Florida, it would one day rival St. Augustine as headquarters of the province. As early, in fact, as 1693, before a single building had been built, Andres de Pes was proposing that St. Augustine be partly abandoned in favor of the new site, a proposal that was hotly contested by the Franciscans. We know that there were two Augustinian fathers and several Franciscans in Pensacola 
when a French expedition visited the site in 1699, but a search by one historian through Spanish documents relating to Pensacola's early history failed to turn up any evidence of missionary activity among the Indians during these first years. The frequency of English incursions into Wale country increased during the 1670s and reached the northernmost mission stations by 1680. In that year, a band of Creek Indians, allied with the English, struck the mission station of Santiago de Acone on Jekyll Island. A few of the Christian Indians were killed, but the remainder, under a Spanish lieutenant, successfully withstood the attack. Shortly afterwards, an attacking force of 300 Indians under English leadership laid siege to the Doctrina of Santa Catalina on St. Catherine's Island. Although heavily outnumbered, Captain Francisco Fuentes, with five Spanish and 16 Indian musketeers, managed to drive off the attackers. Governor Cabrera now ordered a general retreat from the exposed missions of Northern Wale and endeavored to persuade the converted Indians of those parts to relocate on the islands of Santa Maria, San Juan, and Santa Cruz farther south. The Indians, however, refused to go. Many revolted and fled into the woods or, responding to blandishments of the English, joined the warring tribes of the interior. The friars heaped kindnesses on the Chaquites, who remained in an effort to counteract the influence of the Carolinians. But it was in vain. The populations of the northernmost islands aroused to action by the Chiquite of the Yamases, revolted and passed over to the English in a wholesale exodus during 1684. Armed by their new friends, these same Indians unexpectedly crossed into the Spanish territory of Tamaqua the next year and laid waste the mission of Santa Catalina near the Santa Fe River. They burnt the Pueblo and murdered many of its Christian inhabitants, captured others to sell as slaves, and carried off the vestments and sacred vessels. About this same time, a series of pirate raids on the mission south of Zapala, on Zapala itself, and on the station on Jekyll Island, added to the debacle. The Spaniards might have held out against one enemy alone, but the combination of heathen and apostate Indians, aggrandizing Carolinians, and covetous buccaneers was more than their 290 Spanish soldiers could handle. The defense perimeter began to shrink, and with it, the dimensions of La Florida. In 1686, the few remaining Wale Mission Indians who had not gone over to the English were removed to Santa Maria, San Juan, and Santa Cruz, apparently a newly established mission. The Zapala garrison retreated southward with the frontier to Santa Maria. The northern missions were now completely abandoned, and the Spanish-English border stood at the St. Mary's River. When the English Quaker Jonathan Dickinson was shipwrecked below St. Augustine in 1697, he recorded that the missions among the Tamaquins at this date were still active. At Santa Cruz, three leagues north of St. Augustine, Dickinson and his companions found that the Christian Indians were a civilized and industrious group who were well-schooled, modest, reverent, and as diligent in their devotions as were any of the Spaniards. Above Santa Maria on Amelia Island, however, 
He reported that no missions any longer remained. What the English destroyed, they did not replace. Why had the Indians so quickly repudiated their allegiance to Spain and to the church? Surely the firearms and other inducements with which they were applied by English adventurers formed the major and immediate reason. Yet the English had also been able to play upon certain injustices, real or fancied, that hot debates between the priest and Spanish civil officials had called to their attention. After the attack in 1680 on Santa Catalina and Wale, for example, the defending officer, Captain Fuentes, informed the governor that many of the Indians were repudiating their allegiance to Spain because of maltreatment that they had received in the doctrinas. Fuentes reported that against all existing rules, some of the friars were demanding stipends from the Indians, were forcing them to perform personal and menial services with no recompense, and were exacting heavy penalties for disobedience to their orders. Similar charges against the arbitrary and overbearing attitude of the friars occurred periodically in official reports during the next two decades, particularly in the papers of Governor Cabrera, who confessed to being a bigot where Franciscans were concerned. Some of the charges had the ring of exaggeration about them, as though the civil officials were anxious to offer the friars as scapegoats for the law of Sawale, and to screen their own indisputable harshness toward the Indian during these years. One such report in 1691 mentioned that 300 Indians in the mission of Nuestra Señora de la Candelera de la Tama had taken refuge in the woods to avoid the whip of Friar Domingo Santos. Whatever the truth of charges such as these, and Governor Cabrera was not disposed to question them, they made their way to Spain in 1697, where the Council of the Indies issued instructions for the friars to treat the natives well in both word and act, and to see that suavity and sweetness guided their mutual relations. The episode was an unfortunate one, not only because it contributed to the loss of the Wale missions, but also because it formed the only stain on the otherwise glorious habit of the Florida Franciscans. Within the Franciscan house itself, a certain amount of apathy could be discerned during these years, as the century drew to a close. There seemed to be something lacking in the Franciscan spirit, something vital that had marked these men before the heroic measure and now was conspicuously absent. The missions atrophied. For many months, certain villages went without mass. The friars settled down to routine, or else allowed themselves to be worried sick where the English would strike next. Friar Blaise Martinez de Robles, with 37 years' service in five missions, lamented that, except for the robes, the Franciscan order had ceased to exist in Florida. But it had not. Only a few years later, Franciscans would be defending the faith with their lives. A terrible climax to this story of decline and ruin began in 1702 with the outbreak of the War of Spanish Succession, Queen Anne's War in America, in which Spain was allied with France against England. Governor James Moore of Carolina seized on the war as an opportunity to attack St. Augustine itself. With a force of 1,000 men, half English, half Indian, Moore descended on the city by both land and sea. The Marauders forced the missions back 
from the St. Mary's to San Juan. Sent the Christian Indians scattering in fright, took three Franciscans captive, and put to the torch three churches and convents on the island of San Marcos. On October 22nd, the overland and naval forces joined in a feudal siege of the Spaniards' new fort at San Augustine, Castillo de San Marcos, whose broad shell rock battlements had been completed in 1696. The entire population of 1,500 soldiers and civilians spent over 50 days inside the fort while Moore's men, without bombs, could do little more than fume outside. Frustrated, the English raised the siege and prepared to retire to Carolina. Before withdrawing, however, they wreaked vengeance on the old Catholic city, burning down its parish church, the hermitage of Nuestra Señora de la Leche, and the convent and chapel of the Franciscans. The friar's library had already been burned on the first day of the invasion. Of that incident, a Protestant clergyman of that time said, quote, To show what friends, some of them, Moore's men, are to learning in books, when they were at St. Augustine, they burnt a library of books worth about 600 pounds, wherein were a collection of the Greek and Latin fathers, and the Holy Bible itself did not escape because... It was in Latin. As they retired, the English attacked the mission stations of San Jose and San Francisco, killed many of the mission Indians, and took 500 others away as captives. Meanwhile, in the heart of Tamuqua, another English-led raiding party had devastated the church and pueblo of Santa Fe. The land of the missions was dissolving into a land of terror. Appalachia would be next. Discredited by the St. Augustine fiasco, Moore soon resigned as governor of Carolina. In 1703, however, with eyes lusting for the wealth of Appalachia, the Carolina Assembly commissioned Moore to drive the Spaniards out of that frontier province and gave him authority to enlist 50 whites and over 1,000 Creek Indians. Crossing the Akmulji River, Moore's warriors surprised the mission village of La Concepcion de Ayubale, on the morning of January 25, 1704, and quickly penetrated as far as the council house before the friar, Friar Angel de Miranda, could gather enough Indians with muskets to stay the attack. Father Miranda stationed his men in the church and held out for nine hours. Then, his ammunition exhausted, he was compelled to surrender. Word of the attack reached the nearby presidio of San Luis Patali, and Captain Alonzo Diaz Mexia, with 30 Spaniards, two friars, and 400 Indians, rushed to give assistance. Twice they drove Moore back, but on the evening they too ran out of ammunition and had to surrender. Moore was immensely satisfied with himself for having, quote, regained the reputation we seem to have lost. Then he proceeded to enhance that reputation. At Ayubali, and the next day at Patali, his men slew the three priests and committed acts of gratuitous barbarity on the Christian Indians. Friar Juan de Parga Araujo was beheaded and his body butchered. Friar Manuel de Mendoza's body was later found in a charred state, his hands and a half-melted crucifix sunk into his flesh. Father Miranda's remains were never found. To a Spanish rescue party that reached the two towns several days later, the scene was one of indescribable horror. 
Scalped and mutilated bodies of men, women, and children lay about the ground or hung from stakes. The few survivors who came out of the bloodbath to tell the tale had consoling stories of heroism. The governor passed them on to the king, quote, During this cruel and barbarous martyrdom, which the poor Appalachian Indians experienced, there were some of them who encouraged the others, declaring that through martyrdom they would appear before God, and to the pagans they said, Make more fire so that our hearts may be allowed to suffer for our souls. We go to enjoy God as Christians. By the time James Moore withdrew from this second invasion of the peninsula, eight out of the 14 doctrinas in Appalachia had been laid waste. It was a paralyzing blow. Temuqua had learned the Englishman's torch in 1702. Now it too experienced complete disaster as raiders carried on the killing and wanton destruction during 1706 and 1707. By 1708, the Florida missions were no more. In that year, the government of St. Augustine estimated that 10 to 12,000 mission Indians had been carried off to Carolina as slaves. The few remaining Christian Indians in Florida, perhaps 300 men, women, and children, had removed to St. Augustine where they huddled for safety beneath the cannon of the Castillo. Even there, the governor told the king, quote, Some are carried off and killed each day, while on excursions they make to procure wood and palm hearts for their substance. For James Moore, who was concerned about reputation, his acts in Appalachia won him a secure place in history. But the advent of the Englishmen into Florida never reached quite the same publicity as the advent of Menendez. And for reasons best known to academic historians, no black legend ever grew up around him. St. Augustine was without a parish church for the first time in its history. The crude wooden structure burned by Moore's men was no great artistic or economic loss, but its destruction left the 1,500 Catholics of the city no place in which to worship. Father Martin de Alacano, from the nearby mission of Nombre de Dios, recorded that the English destroyed everything in town, quote, with the exception of the hospital and 20 houses. It was the chapel of this hospital, Nuestra Señora de la Soledad, that the priest took over for daily and Sunday Mass, keeping in use the hospital wards, which remained either in the same building or in an adjacent one. When the Council of the Indies learned that the parish church had been destroyed, it recommended to the king that 20,000 pesos be appropriated to build a new one. Nothing ever came of this proposal, however, and the inadequate facilities at La Soledad had to serve until 1763. Funds actually were sent to rebuild the Franciscan convent of the Immaculate Conception, but somehow they dissolved as they passed through the hands of civil functionaries. Until 1755, the Franciscans managed in a rude coquina, rock chapel, and frail wooden huts for living quarters. Remains of the destroyed hermitage of Nuestra Señora de la Leche stood at the mission of Nombre de Dios, a cannon shot from the Castillo. It was patiently rebuilt from Coquina Rock, the shell conglomerate that was now being used extensively by the Spanish engineers. The reconstructed chapel ran north and south, 33 by 15 feet, and easily accommodated the estimated 40 Christian Indians who could still be found at the Pioneer Mission. Most of the Indians at Nombre de Dios by the 1720s were Yamasis, Carolina Indians who had once been allies of the English. 
but now were settled peaceably among the Spaniards. Some of the Yamasas went north on occasion to raid outposts of their former friends. In March of 1728, they were attacked themselves by a combined English-Indian force under Colonel John Palmer, a member of the Commons House of Assembly in South Carolina. Palmer attacked the Yamasis head-on at their strongest point, which was Nombre de Dios. He killed 30, wounded and captured many more. When the survivors retired to the Castillo, Palmer burned the Hermitage Chapel on March 20th and carried off the few statues and altar furnishings that adorned the little building. Among the statues was the figure of the Blessed Virgin nursing the infant Jesus, Nuestra Señora de la Leche y Buena Parto, our nursing mother of happy delivery. Under which title the Spaniards of Florida had venerated Mary since early in the 17th century. The special devotion had originated in Madrid in 1598, when a reported miracle persuaded King Philip III to erect a shrine under the title of the Church of San Luis in Madrid. The original statue and shrine were destroyed by communist elements of the Loyalist Army on May 13, 1937, during the Spanish Civil War. In the mop-up after this latest English raid, Florida Governor Antonio de Benavides decided to break up the remaining stones of the mission lest they be used in the future as shelter for an attacking enemy. A new chapel and hermitage were therefore built inside the outer defense line or hornwork that crossed the south line of the original mission property, and a new image of the mother and child was ordered from Spain. Violence also erupted around the infant church at Pensacola. In May 1719, the Spanish fort and settlement were invested by French warships and, being too weak to withstand the siege, had to surrender. The two priests of the settlement, both Franciscans, were given safe escort to Havana. Spanish arms later recovered the fort, only to lose it a second time to Frenchmen under the Count de Champlaisin. When the French decided that they would not hold the site, they destroyed the fort and the town by fire. The church went up in flames with the rest. When in 1720 the site was restored to Spain by treaty, a new fort and church were built on the western extremity of Santa Rosa Island. Some years later, the settlement was moved to its permanent location where a third church was erected. The most significant religious event to occur in Florida during these years after the destruction of the mission chain was the arrival in 1709 of Florida's first resident bishop. Although the bishops of Cuba had pressed since 1690 for the erection of the independent bishopric in Florida, the Council of the Indies determined that the peninsula could best be governed ecclesiastically by an auxiliary bishop of Cuba who should have permanent residence in St. Augustine. Under this arrangement, Florida would not itself be a diocese, and the auxiliary bishop would not exercise ordinary jurisdiction over the province. Both province and bishop would remain directly subordinate to the See of Santiago de Cuba. King Philip V acted favorably on this arrangement and proposed it to Pope Clement XI, who gave approval in May of 1703. Named to the new post was Dionisio Rezino, the oldest priest in Cuba. Several years' delay ensued before the new bishop could be consecrated as the Bishop of Cuba. The governor of Florida and the king argued the question who should support the auxiliary bishopric financially. An equitable solution was reached finally in 1708, and Rezino was consecrated early the next year in Yucatan.
He arrived to a warm welcome at St. Augustine on June 23, 1709, after a narrow escape from 11 English warships. Unfortunately, all the buildings of the parish were in ashes, except for the chapel of La Soledad. No Episcopal residence could be provided, and with the loss of the missions, the Franciscans had almost no Indians to present for confirmation. Disheartened, Rosino sailed back to Cuba only three weeks after his arrival. Two years later, he died. The question whether Florida should be raised to an independent diocese was debated again in Cuba and Spain. The arguments continued until 1723, when the see in Cuba finally agreed to underwrite another auxiliary bishop. Nothing was done about it, however, until 1731, when Francisco de San Benaventura y Tejada, professor of theology and guardian of a Franciscan convent in Seville, was appointed to the post. Benaventura sailed from Spain the next year, was consecrated at Veracruz, and arrived at St. Augustine in July 1735. He was shocked to find the capital in a state of spiritual decadence. Families were racked by scandals. Drunken Indians roamed the streets. English traders preached heretical doctrines on street corners. And the parochial church at La Soledad was an unkept disgrace. Quote, when it rains, it is the same as being outside. The bishop put a new roof on the church, reinforced the planking it had for walls, and built a stone sacristy alongside. He gave new encouragement to the pastor and three assistants of the parish, gathered the children of the town in the church three days a week to teach them their catechism, struck out at immoral behavior, private and public, and prohibited gambling in the local taverns, opened a classical school for young boys, the only school in Florida since the English invasion, promoted religious processions through the streets of the town, and by April 1736, conferred the Sacrament of Confirmation on 630 Spaniards and 143 slave and free Negroes. In 1740, when St. Augustine was invested for 37 days by a powerful English land and sea force under General James Oglethorpe, the bishop roused the zeal of the population with pious exhortations. And with each round of the English cannonading led the people in choruses of Ave Maria. Under this title, he composed a description of the siege, which was printed at Seville in 1740. Benaventura was presented for the See of Yucatan in 1745 and left St. Augustine the same year. By the date of his departure, he had sparked a moral regeneration of the rude frontier town, which now was once again remarked for its stable moral life and its civilized amenities. Unfortunately, his successor was not equal to the same task. Father Pedro Panche y Carrasco of Cuba was named auxiliary in 1745, but did not arrive in Florida until nine years later. Although a man of high intellectual and moral repute, the new prelate lacked the vitality required for the Florida Post, and he sailed home to Cuba only 10 months after his arrival. The last bishop to rule in Florida before 1763 was the Bishop of Santiago de Cuba himself, Pedro Augustin Morel, a native of Veracruz. He came to St. Augustine not by design, but by an accident of war. In 1762, Havana was seized by British forces under the Earl of Albemarle. Bishop Morel was forcibly ejected from his cathedral, carried out in his Episcopal chair, and placed on a British man-of-war, which took him as prisoner 
to the English settlement in Charleston, South Carolina. Morell thus became the first bishop to enter the limits of the 13 original English colonies. After two weeks of detention, he was allowed to go to St. Augustine, which he reached in early December 1762. He took the opportunity of his involuntary presence in Florida to make an official visitation. Between December 29th and April 11th of the following year, the bishop inspected the parish of St. Augustine and the few remaining towns of Christian Indians in the province, confirming altogether 639 persons. In the spring, the clergy of Cuba were able to send a ship to convey their bishop back home. What are the Franciscans during these years? Their headquarter convent in St. Augustine had been burnt in 1702, and their chain of missions had been wiped out during the years from 1702 to 1708. Except for the few remaining Christian Indians around St. Augustine, there had been almost complete loss through enslavement or apostasy of the thousands of Aborigines that their order had labored so long to Christianize and civilize. Understandably, Franciscan morale was at a low point. In 1715, however, there came a breakthrough that gave high promise that the friars might get their circle of missions underway again. In that year, Caquiques, representing perhaps 50,000 Indians from 161 villages, Yamasis, Lower Creeks, Appalachies, came to St. Augustine to ask friendship and protection. Their alliance with England had collapsed. The Franciscans sent an urgent request to Spain for more hands to help reap this sudden and unexpected harvest. Unfortunately, the crown was three years late in acting on the request, and by the end of 1719, only nine new friars had arrived in the province. Ten more came in 1722, but the number was still grossly insufficient. And of these 19 recruits, all but two became discouraged by the hardships of Florida mission life and left for Cuba. By 1724, there was a Franciscan in only 11 of the 161 receptive Indian villages. Financial support also failed to materialize, and the new missions floundered. The most serious reason behind the failure of the mission revival was a bitter struggle for control of the order that broke out in the 1720s between the Creoles, colonial-born, colonial-trained Franciscans, and the new-arrived recruits, or peninsulars, from Spain. The Creoles had been left in control of the Order of Florida after the disasters of 1702 and 1704. And when all but two of the new arrivals from Spain retired to Cuba during the 1720s, the Creoles remained even more firmly entrenched by default. Then, in 1732, nine new friars arrived from Spain and the factional dispute broke out anew. The Creoles treated the peninsulars in a fashion that can only be called cavalier. They gave them no briefing or training, assigned them to hostile villages, shifted them about a frequent intervals, and the result that they had no chance to learn the individual languages and restricted their participation in chapter and conventional administration. Not inaccurately, the peninsulars charged the Creoles with abusing their newfound authority and with acting in a manner that was detrimental to the success of the missions. The climax came in 1735, and that year the peninsulars held their own separate chapter election, and the rift became definite and open. For several years, the unsavory and acrimonious division continued. Newly arrived Florida Governor Manuel de Montiano described the condition of the order in 1738 as a, quote, deep abyss of enmity and disunion. In seeking a solution, 
to the impasse, the Bishop of Santiago de Cuba and the Franciscan Commissionary General of New Spain sided with the Creoles. King Philip V, however, took the part of the Peninsulars and forcibly declared in their favor in 1737 and again in 1739. That settled the factional struggle, but nothing seemed to help the missions themselves, which continued to decline in numbers and influence. With no military protection and no supporting funds, with no means of protecting their Indian charges against the inducements of English traders, with little or no assistance from civil officials at St. Augustine, it is no wonder that the missionaries had to abandon one after another their mission villages. In 1738, 25 priests were serving in Florida. By 1759, only 10 remained. During these years, the Franciscans also lost their jurisdiction over the Indians of St. Augustine. In 1746, the crown awarded ecclesiastical jurisdiction over all Christians residing in St. Augustine, Spaniards, Creoles, Indians, Mezitos, persons of mixed Indian and Spanish blood, mulatos, and Negroes to the pastor and assistant pastors of the parish church. The prestige of the seculars went up and that of the Franciscans correspondingly went down. The only substantial accomplishment of the friars during these waning years of the first Spanish period in Florida was the construction, finally, of a new monastery. Begun in 1724 and occupied by the friars for the first time in 1737, it was a handsome Coquila rock structure, 168 feet tall, 18 feet wide, and 18 feet high, that stood at the south end of the town overlooking the Matanzas River. 25 cells were provided, more than enough for the number of friars who remained in the city. By mid-century, it was obvious that the church's effort to recover its fortunes after the devastating raids of 1702 and 1704 had failed, although enough recovery had been made to assure the continued routine presence of Catholicity in Florida. There was nothing during these years to resemble the missionary expansion of the previous century. Catholic life in the province was at best static. Only two parishes and a handful of missions could be shown as the result of two centuries of Spanish labors. Economically, the province had not fared much better, and in 1763, the Spanish crown decided finally to rid itself of the destitute colony. The occasion was the conclusion of the Seven Years' or, or in America, the French and Indian War, during which English forces captured the prized port of Havana. England agreed to return Havana on the condition that Spain cede to her either Puerto Rico or Florida. In the first Treaty of Paris signed in 1763, Florida was chosen by King Charles III to be the more easily expendable property, and in the spring of that year, the transfer of sovereignty was formally made. On July 20th, a regiment of redcoats paraded through the plaza of St. Augustine under the shocked gaze of 3,096 Spanish soldiers under the shocked gaze of 3,096 Spanish soldiers and civilians. The ancient Presidio surrendered on paper what she had never yielded on the field. The first Spanish period of Florida came to an end, and one year later, no more than eight Catholics, all laymen, could be found anywhere on the peninsula. In his book on popular history of the Catholic Church in the United States, John O'Kane Murray writes about Florida in his chapter on, uh, basically, it goes through all the missions of Florida, Texas, New Mexico, etc. Uh, in his chapter on Florida, a new and deadly foe, but at length a change came. England, recently turned apostate, was rapidly planting colonies along the Atlantic seaboard. 
the deadly foe of Catholicity and the Indian, we need not be astonished to learn that she aimed at the destruction of both. Such was ever her American policy. From the English colony of Carolina, war was soon carried into the peaceful Indian towns of Florida. In 1703, a body of fanatics ravaged the country. Quote, the Indian towns, says an able writer, were destroyed, the missionaries slaughtered, and their forest children shared their fate, or, still more unfortunate, were hurried away and sold as slaves in the English West Indies. In 1763, by the Treaty of Paris, Spain ceded Florida to England. Quote, this was the death blow of the missions. They were destroyed, the Indians dispersed, and St. Helena, the convent whence Christianity had radiated over the peninsula, became a barrack, and such is that venerable monastery in our own day. Driven from their village and fields, which the English seized, the unhappy natives of Florida were forced to wander in the wilderness and resume the nomadic life of barbarism, whence Christianity had reclaimed them. Cursed by the tyranny of a guilty nation, deprived of liberty, the consolations of religion, and the friendship of the black robes, these unhappy sons of the forest might well exclaim with the young priest in Macbeth, let us seek some desolate shade, and there weep our sad bosoms empty. Buried in pathless everglades without spiritual guides, the Florida Indians took the name of Seminoles, which in their own language means wanderers. They gradually lost the faith and became the scourge of the whites. At the date of our Revolutionary War, not a single mission had escaped the destroying progress of England. Now, the following is taken from the website, the, the Martyrs of La Florida Missions.org backslash martyrs. I'll have it linked in the show notes. And also, there's a book out there which pretty much does the same thing. You'll see it over there, over here. Uh, it's The Florida Martyrs Compelled by Compassion by Eric Olson. Uh, pretty much a little bit more uh, from the website, but I'll give you a little rundown from the, the website. Uh, here's a, on February 14th, 2022, Bishop William A. Wack of the Diocese of Pensacola, Tallahassee, submitted to Rome a list of those individuals to whom credible evidence of martyrdom exists. The Congregation for the Causes of Saints has received the list, and we are awaiting further direction from them. The individuals on the list are, number one, Father Diego de Tolosa, Dominican, early June 1549, and Brother Fuentes, Dominican, early June 1549. Also, Father Luis de Cancer, Dominican, June 26, 1549. A little write-up of him. You've heard it in the other ones earlier, about a couple hours ago. Uh, Father Cancer, a native of Barbastro in the Kingdom of Aragon joined the Dominican Order and spent many years ministering in the Caribbean and Central America, having heard reports of unsuccessful Spanish missions to Florida and having encountered native Floridians who had been dispossessed as a result of Spanish activity there, Father Cancer and his fellow Dominican, Father Gregorio de Beteta, uh, resolved to plant the gospel in the land of Florida. In the late spring of 1549, Father Cancer and Father Betata left Veracruz on the Santa Maria de la Enchina, bound for Havana and then Florida. With them were the Dominican priest Juan Garcia and Diego de Tolosa, and a lay brother named Fuentes. Once in Havana, the missionaries received further supplies, and they were also joined by a Christian Indian named Magdalena, or Madalena, who was to serve as their translator. Magdalena, a member of the Tocobaga tribe, 
had been captured by the Spanish in 1539 during the Soto expedition. On the vigil of the Ascension, Wednesday, May 5, 1549, Father Cancer's expedition sighted the Florida coast at approximately 27 degrees latitude, somewhere near present-day Bradenton. Initial contacts with native peoples were apparently amiable and peaceful. On one occasion, Father Cancer knelt in prayer with his fellow missionaries and with Magdalena, and they were joined by many Indians. Father Tolosa and Fuentes were apprehended and killed shortly after they opt against Father Cancer's judgment to separate themselves from the rest of the missionary party and travel on foot to their destined port. Their deaths were later confirmed by a Spaniard named Munoz, who had come to Florida with the Soto expedition and who now sought refuge with the Dominicans. Sometime later, Father Cancer went ashore and was clubbed to death after having fallen to his knees in prayer. The location of these killings were most likely present-day Safety Harbor, Florida. These Dominican missionaries have enjoyed a continuous fama, reputation for martyrdom, from an early date. A remarkable relic is the diary that Father Cancer kept in his own hand, which was completed by Father Betata, an eyewitness to his death. Number four, Father Pedro Martinez S.J., between September 28th and October 6th, 1566. Father Pedro Martinez, a native of Toruel in Aragon, was appointed superior of the first band of Jesuits bound for Florida, who departed Spain in June of 1566. With him were two fellow Jesuits, Father Juan Rogel and Brother Francisco Villarreal. When their ship was near the coast of Florida, Father Martinez volunteered to take a small party ashore in a smaller boat in order to seek directions and supplies. On September 14, 1566, they made landfall, perhaps on Cumberland Island. As they traveled through native villages, they were well-received until they entered a region under the control of Saturiba, who was partial to the Huguenots, near present-day Mount Cornelia, on the eastern outskirts of Jacksonville. Father Martinez's company went ashore in search of fish, leaving him and the remaining crew in their boat, which was soon surrounded. Not availing himself of an opportunity to escape, Father Martinez was eventually pulled from the boat, dragged ashore, and beaten to death. He has been long regarded as the proto-Jesuit martyr of the Americas. Number 5, Father Luis Francisco de Quiros, S.J., February 4th. 1571. Six, Brother Gabriel de Solis, S.J., February 4th, 1571. Seven, Brother Juan Bautista Mendez, S.J., February 4th or 5th, 1571. Father Juan Bautista de Segura, S.J., February 9th or 10th, 1571. Number nine, Brother Pedro de Linares, S.J., February 9th or 10th, 1571. Number 10, Brother Sancho Chavalos, S.J., February 9th or 10th, 1571. Number 11, Brother Gabriel Gomez, S.J., February 9th or 10th, 1571. Number 12, Brother Cristobal Redondo, S.J., February 9th or 10th, 1571. These eight Jesuit missionaries were killed in February 1571 in present-day Virginia, which at that time was claimed by the Spanish and was part of La Florida. In the summer of 1570, frustrated with the slow progress of evangelization in the Spanish forts ringing the peninsula of Florida, 
Father Juan Bautista de Segura, a native of Toledo, opted to undertake a mission far to the north to the region known as Ajacan, apart from the long-standing Spanish interest in this region. Father Segura was attracted to this location by an Indian named Paqui Quineo, a native of Ajacan, who had received baptism while in Mexico City, having taken the name Louis, and was now offering to assist the Spanish in the conversion of his tribe. The eight Jesuits, accompanied by a young altar server named Alonso Olmos, the son of settlers of Santa Elena, arrived in Ajacan in early September 1570. Paquiquinero, Don Luis, remained with the Jesuits for only a few days. He soon returned to live with his tribe, and he rejected more than one entreaty by the Jesuits to return. Five months later, he and some companions attacked the Jesuits on two separate occasions, killing them all. Only Alonso survived. These eight Jesuits have enjoyed a reputation for martyrdom from an early date. 13, 14, 15, three Franciscan friars went under their name February 14th, 1647. Number 16, Lieutenant Governor Claudio Luis de Florencia, February 14th, 1647. Number 17, Joana de Leiva y Artega, the wife of the Lieutenant Governor, February 14th, 1647. Number 18, Antonia de Florencia, teenage daughter of the Florencias, February 14th, 1647. Number 19, Maria de Florencia, married daughter of the Florencias, February 14th, 1647. Number 20, the unborn child of Maria, February 14th, 1647. And number 21, the young son of Maria, February 14th, 1647. At least as early as 1607, it was reported that several villages in Apalachee, the region of northern Florida between the Akula and Ochlaconi rivers, were requesting friars. But it was not until 1633 that the Spanish established a permanent missionary presence there. Initial reports indicated widespread conversions to Christianity, and by 1647, eight native chiefs out of more than 40 had converted and had permitted the establishment of doctrinas in their villages. But in early 1647, Appalachie was the scene of a brutal uprising. The planned revolt began on the evening of February 14th in the newly established mission of San Antonio de Bacuqua, where a large crowd, including the Florencia family, had assembled to celebrate the following day's feast of the translation of the relics of St. Anthony. Five friars managed to escape with the help of Christian natives. Six Spanish soldiers also survived because they were at Governor Ruiz's wheat farm at that time. But three friars were killed, as were the lieutenant governor and several members of his family. Seven of the eight churches in the region were burnt. Regrettably, few of the names of those who were killed have survived. In addition to Ensign Claudio Luis de Florencia, born 1597, who had been appointed lieutenant governor of Appalachia in April 1645, and his wife, Juana de Leiva y Artega, born 1598. We only know the names of two of their daughters, Antonia, born 1632, and Maria, born 1628. We know, however, that Maria's infant son was killed, 
And we also know that her unborn child was killed brutally cut from her womb. We also know that Antonia was particularly courageous and demonstrative in her testimony of faith. In retaliation for her proclamation of the law of God, she was tied to a pillar of the bell tower of the church and her breast and tongue were cut off. The bodies of the slain were tossed into a lake. They were discovered once the rebellion had been put down. Number 22, Friar Luis Sanchez E. Pacheco, OFM, October 29th, 1696. Number 23, a sacristan, October 29th, 1696. Number 24, a young Indian Cachique, October 29th, 1696. Father Luis Sanchez, a native of Havana, was killed on October 29th, 1696 in Hororo Province, which is located in central Florida, south of Orlando. Also killed with him were a sacristan and a young Indian chief from Ipaha. Evidence of this event comes not only from Spanish sources, but also from the journal of Jonathan Dickinson, a Quaker merchant who was shipwrecked off Jupiter Inlet in September of that year. Number 25, Antonio Cuipa. January 26, 1704. Number 26, Cui Domingo. January 26, 1704. Number 27, Cuipa Feliciano. January 26, 1704. And number 28, Friar Juan de Parga Arajo, OFM, January 26, 1704. Antonio Cuiapa, Cuapa Felicino, Cui Dominigo, and Friar Juan Parga Araujo were martyred in the aftermath of the English and Creek attack on the Arubale mission in January 1704. Antonio was in Iniha. Second in command of the mission of San Luis de Talimali, the largest Appalachian mission in La Florida, with the population of approximately 8,000 Christian natives, among whom were Cuipa, Feliciano, and Cui Dominigo. San Luis was located on the site of modern day Tallahassee. On January 27, 1704, the English from the Carolinas led an attack on the mission village of. La Concepcion de Ayubale, approximately 30 miles east of Tallahassee in modern-day Jefferson County. A group of Spanish soldiers and Appalachian natives, including Antonio Cuipa, Cuipa Feliciano, and Cui Dominigo, left San Luis to aid the embattled villagers of Ayubale. The San Luis men rested off El Camino Real at the mission of San Pedro y Pablo de Patale, located about halfway between the missions of San Luis and Ayubale. The Franciscan Juan Pargo Arayujo from the province of Santiago in Galicia was the priest and teacher of the Patale mission, known as the preacher of great zeal who was fluent in the Appalachian language. He administered the sacraments and preached a lengthy sermon to the men from San Luis anticipating the ensuing martyrdom. Despite multiple attempts to dissuade him, Father Parga insisted on accompanying the force to Ayubale. On January 26, the expedition met the larger English and Creek force at Ayubale and was defeated. Father Parga was killed on the road near Ayubale and his severed head 
was brought to the council house. His body was found in a chenebrake and was buried at the nearby mission of Ivitachuco at the request of Father Juan de Villava, the priest there. Antonio, Quiapa, Felicino, and Cui Domenico were among those captured. Their English and Creek captors tied them to stakes and lit fires at their feet. Despite this torture, these Catholic natives encouraged each other and attempted to evangelize their tormentors. After suffering from dawn until dusk, Antonio received a great gift. The Blessed Mother appeared to him. Antonio declared that the Most Holy Virgin was helping him to endure his martyrdom. The extraordinary faith and holy death of these Florida natives captured the admiration of the Spanish King Philip V, who directed his ambassador in Rome to inform the Pope of this event. Number 29, Friar Manuel de Mendoza, OFM, June 23, 1704. Number 30, a sacristan. Number 31, 32, a two-year-old Native American and Native American woman of Patali. Friar Manuel de Mendoza, a native of the Castilian town of Mandela de Rio Seco, served for 26 years in the Florida missions. Known for his generosity to the poor, Father Mendoza succeeded Father Parga at Mission Patali. Five months after the carnage, in January 1704, the English renewed their attacks on the Florida missions. After celebrating the vigil mass for the feast of St. John the Baptist on June 23, 1704, Father Mendoza was shot and burnt after he was lured out of his convent. Father Mendoza's sacristan was also killed and the convent was burned. Number 33, Balthasar Francisco, July 4th, 1704. Number 34, Don Pedro Marmalejo, July 4th, 1704. And numbers 35 to 49, 15 Apalachee Indians, July 4th, 1704. These Spanish soldiers and Native Americans were tortured and crucified on July 4th, 1704, a half-league west of Mission Patali, following the battle that marked the end of the Catholic missions in Appalachia. The English and their Creek allies tied 15 faithful Appalachian men and two Spanish soldiers to the outdoor stations of the cross surrounding the plaza in Patali. They set fires at the foot of those crosses, slashed their captives, and put burning splinters in their wounds. Despite his intense suffering, Balthasar Francisco preached from the cross and called upon the Virgin Mary, confident that she would carry him to God. Number 50 and 51, a Tamaquin Cachique of San Pedro and another one of San Mateo, August 1704. Following the devastation of Appalachia, English allied Indians continued the attack the remaining missions in northern Florida. In August of 1704, the Tamaquin villages of San Pedro and San Mateo were destroyed and their caciques, or leaders, were burnt. Number 52, Father Augustin Ponce de Leon, OFM, September 3rd, 1705. Father Augustin Ponce de Leon, OFM, a native of St. Augustine, had gone with Captain Joseph Begambre, in pursuit of some Native Americans who had taken numerous prisoners, women, and children from the town over which Father Augustine had care. 
During the battle at dawn on September 3rd, Father Augustine distinguished himself by encouraging the Spanish and Native Americans and by administering the sacrament of penance to the wounded. Like a good pastor, he gave up his soul in defense of his sheep and the children of his doctrina, but he managed to bring about the release of the majority of the prisoners. Number 53, Friar Domingo Criado, OFM, 1705. Friar Domingo Criado, OFM, from the province of Santiago, Spain, was captured from his village, which was located some 10 or 12 leagues from St. Augustine, and imprisoned. According to reports from some Christian Native Americans who escaped, Friar Domingo was reduced to slavery and died some months later. Number 54 and 55, Don Patricio and his wife, Spring, 1706. Don Patricio de Hinachuba, a well-educated native of Avitachuco, a town in Appalachian province, was known as the pen pal of the king due to his correspondence seeking justice for the Appalachian people. In the aftermath of the English devastation of Appalachia in 1704, Don Patricio and an Appalachian remnant moved east and settled first in Abosaya, near present-day Gainesville, and then on the southern outskirts of St. Augustine. He was killed in the spring of 1706 by a band of Creek warriors seeking to destroy the remaining Appalachian Christians. Father Felipe Orbalis y Abreu, August 26, 1712. Father Orbalis, a barber surgeon of the Order of San Juan de Dios, was killed on August 26, 1712, when 300 Creek warriors ambushed 40 Spanish soldiers commanded by Pedro de Bilbao within sight of the fort of Santa Maria de Galve, Pensacola. Three soldiers were killed along with Father Orbeles, and several Spaniards were captured, including Father Taborcio de Osorio. Number 57, Friar Taborcio de Osorio, OFM, between August 26, 1712 and July 1715. Father Osorio, OFM, a native of Havana, was captured by the Creeks on August 26, 1712, Evidence suggests that he was taken in custody to the homeland of the Upper Creeks, which was near the present-day town of Columbus, Georgia. He was murdered while in captivity. In the book Monuments, Marvels, and Miracles, the Catholic, the Traveler's Guide to Catholic America, you get the book, it's great, the photos over there, it mentions uh, sites to go to in the States, so I've used them in the other videos. Uh, St. Michael the Archangel, defend us in battle. That's the battle cry of the Basilica of St. Michael the Archangel in Pensacola. The parish traces its origin to August 1559 when Spanish explorer Tristan de Luna y Arellano and 11 ships landed at Pensacola Bay and Dominican friars offered mass. Canonically established in 1781, the first church, a two-story former warehouse, collapsed in 1831. Three subsequent churches were leveled by a hurricane and fire and yet another fire. The parish soldiered on and built today's Gothic Revival brick structure in 1883. It also says, note the metal card holders on pew ends from a bygone custom where parishioners were assigned pews and paid pew rent. 
a wood-carved bowed altar rail, and the rose window of St. Michael the Archangel, Captain of the Army of God. Our Lady reigns at Jacksonville's Basilica of the Immaculate Conception, founded in 1854, the year the Immaculate Conception of Mary was declared a dogma of the Catholic faith. The original church was sacked and burnt during the Civil War. Fire of 1901 took the second church, but miraculously, a large Mary statue atop the burnt-out structure survives. The present church, a Gothic Revival temple with Munich stained glass and trumpet-blowing angel statues standing on pillars, was dedicated on the Feast of the Immaculate Conception in 1910. Baby Wanted, the heartfelt cry of infertile couples who beseech heaven at Our Lady of La Leche, Our Lady of the Milk, National Shrine, at Mission Nombre de Deus at St. Augustine. Many couples attest that after praying here, they miraculously conceive and a baby is born nine months later. America's oldest Marian shrine, Spaniards built the original chapel around 1615. The tiny Coquina Chapel houses a statue of Mother Mary nursing the holy infant. The mission also boasts a 208-foot-tall stainless steel great cross commemorating the area's first mass, in 1605. Our Lady of Lourdes Grotto at the Basilica of St. Mary Star of the Sea in Key West was dedicated in 1922. Sister Luis Gabriel, SNJM, a survivor of three major local hurricanes, who also designed and oversaw its construction, prophesied that as long as the outdoor rock grotto stood, quote, Key West would never experience the full brunt of a hurricane. As parishioners can vouch, there hasn't been a severe storm on the island since. The 1904 Basilica is known for its American Victorian architecture and decorative pressed metal panels. St. Martha Catholic Church in Sarasota, erected in 1940, the Ringham Brothers and Barnum Bailey Circus is also revered church history. From 1935 to 1941, Ringham Brothers and Barnum and Bailey Circus, Sarasota was their winter home, staged benefit performances under the Big Top and donated the receipts to help fund the new church. Mounted on the sanctuary wall are two brightly painted circus wagon wheels. Designated America's Circus Church, St. Martha's keeps the sacramental records for its traveling performers. The Cathedral Basilica of St. Augustine, America's first parish dates from September 8, 1565, when Spanish Admiral and Explorer Pedro Menendez de Aviles came ashore and Father Francisco Lopez de Mendoza, Grejales, celebrated a mass of Thanksgiving, often hailed as America's first Thanksgiving, for the fleet's safe arrival from Spain. Built by the Spanish crown from 1793 to 1797, the Spanish colonial cathedral is spiritually captivating. The Spanish red ceiling with open timbers pulls eyes heavenward, while murals depict Florida's early Catholic history. Munich stained glass windows present the life of Paris patron St. Augustine of Hippo, and Smalto glass mosaics illustrate the Last Supper. Looking for the Fountain of Eternal Life, a stone replica of Spanish explorer Juan Ponce de Leon's baptismal font graces the church entrance. 